This feature presentation is brought to you in living color. Thank you, Hollywood's ready. Thank you very much. World order. I stand before you today. Now you're gonna get it. Humble by the premier event that is about to take place. Our own pay-per-view. We are in control. He's out of control. WCW sucks. Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> or don't like it. You couldn't handle the truth. We don't care. To you, I say thank you one and all. Global dominance. So <laughs> You're going down. Who's next? And to those of you who have offered yourselves up as the bonus. What the hell were you thinking? Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 years of Nitro, our chronological breakdown of World Championship Wrestling's flagship show, where each episode is viewed, reviewed, analyzed, and categorized as we compile an audio anthology of our tour along the southern front of wrestling's Monday Night Wars. I am your host, Tim Root, and with me, (laughs) as always, it's my quarantine colleague, Dave Amantorp. How are you doing today, Dave? Yeah, so for the last few episodes, I have been talking about how excited I was for Sold Out for the fact that it's one of the very few WCW (laughs) pay-per-views that I have not seen. That's right, And now I think the lesson that we're learning here is to be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Um, So I'm very much looking forward to to getting through this and moving on. Well, of course, today, as Dave mentioned, we are not reviewing Nitro, but rather the NWO sold-out pay-per-view. But before we get into that, I do want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter at 20 Years of Nitro. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash 20 Years of Nitro. And of course, you can email the show at 20 Years of Nitro at gmail.com. Now, joining us to review this absolute turd of a pay-per-view is an independent wrestling referee based in New York City who you may have seen in Starpro, Shakara, and more. She is also one of the hosts of the podcast Contesting Wrestling, as well as a Twitch streamer. Please welcome to the show, Katie Vela. How are you doing today, Katie? I am great. I am all quarantined up as well. I suppose you could refer to me as a quarantine acquaintance, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and as as Tim said, I am a professional wrestling referee based out of Manhattan. Uh, formerly, for a couple of years, I did work for Chikara, recently ref for Star Pro. I do all sorts of local work in the New York City area as well for a lot of local promotions when they are running, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bronx Wrestling Federation, uh, Intense Wrestling Alliance, both independent promotions you can check out. If you're in the area, I do have the Twitch channel as well. You can follow me at Over Here Counting. I mostly stream Pokemon Nuzlocks, which are basically uh, hard mode Pokemon challenges. So if you're into that kind of thing as well, uh, follow me at RefKatie on Twitter. And I don't know, uh, it, it, it's a hell of a pay-per-view. You can say that, that we're <laughs> about to run down. It's it's a weird show. 
Well, today is, of course, Saturday, January 25th, 1997, and we are coming to you live from the Five Seasons Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in front of 5,120 fans, a sold-out house for this small building. Uh, they paid a total gate of $68,209. It's a smaller arena, obviously. That's the first impression you get as soon as they get to the arena, but it's absolutely packed. Like It looks like there's not a vacant seat in the house, so they have that going for them from the beginning. This is before they made the mistake of starting book, uh, constantly booking uh, later on when they would start booking, uh, not arenas, but um, what's the word I'm looking Stadiums? for? Stadiums. Remember in, near the end, which I'm sure you guys will get to at some point, they start booking stadiums. It was much better when they booked these smaller arenas because it looks more full. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so as opposed to like with Nitro, they can usually get by by scheduling Nitros at uh, venues only a few months in advance because there's a lot less people running uh, venues on Mondays. But for pay-per-views, which are typically on Saturdays and Sundays, these are booked almost a year in advance. So people might be wondering why Nitro has been in the United Center recently. They've been in the Superdome. Why is this pay-per-view that's coming after those events at such a smaller venue? It's simply because this had to be booked far in advance where nitros can be more done on the fly so you start realizing oh we're more popular we can do bigger buildings uh unfortunately though they were kind of you know they're just locked into this uh, cedar rapids mm -hmm. for this january show and and i know that we mentioned it before and I, I i guess we haven't really heard any clarification one way or the other but my belief is that they're doing this on a saturday because the next day on sunday is the super bowl and, that is correct. The last thing they want to do is to go head to head with that. Yeah, uh, I believe on the Eric Bischoff ep uh, podcast, he confirmed that when they did their sold out episode. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. Oh, I'm. I mean, it's 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 by rate suicide to go against the Super Bowl as any other sort of sporting event, even predetermined sporting events like wrestling. It, it would just it would be moronic to even try. Well, it's interesting because, uh, and we'll talk about it far later in the show, but this show gets a terrible buy rate. Uh, which of course it deserves because it is bad. But people <laughs> right. ordering the show, people ordering the show wouldn't have known that. Of course, I think the fact that it was not on a typical night for wrestling is part of what took a chunk out of its buy rate. Oh yeah, that's always hurt. If you look up the buy rates for when they would do Taboo Tuesday back in the back in the Ruthless Aggression era, it was always abysmal. Mm -hmm. This is the first sold out pay per view. WCW went from ten pay per views in '96 to twelve here in '97. So the two new additions are a January pay-per-view, that's what we're seeing here, and then in April we will see the return of Spring Stampede, which has been absent from the WCW calendar since 1994. And that's also one of my like all-time favorite pay-per-views, because I love the pay-per-views that have like a distinct like stage theme to them, mm -hmm. and especially like uh, WCW in the next like couple of years will get like really big on on like the themed stages, and those are just outstanding like nothing really like sets a pace better than like like having a big stagecoach and hay bales and a <laughs> barn and stuff like that yeah. it just looks so great Still hot, still sweet! 
The show opens with sirens and garbage trucks making their way down a snowy Iowa street. They're filmed in black and white with artificial film grain put over it, NWO style. Eric Bischoff, on the back of a garbage truck, declares this is a whole fleet of dirt bags. You gotta love it. <laughs> Nash, on the back of a different truck, says even at minus 200 degrees, he's still feeling hot and still sweet. Now, every person I've heard describe this shoot, uh, from Eric Bischoff to Kevin Nash to uh, Nitro producer in front of the show, Neil Pruitt, they all said that it was 20 below. Oh, no. Uh, but I went to the I went to the historical w- weather data, and it was only four degrees out. Uh, but with wind chill, it probably was closer to 20 below. That, that probably is a fairly accurate uh, temperature for what they were feeling out there. And also hanging on the back of a moving vehicle, too, is going to create wind chill. And a lot of these guys, you can tell that they, they're they not from this part of the country. Dave and I are from Minnesota, uh, so we're not too far from Iowa. Oh, I'm from Wisconsin, so. Oh, okay. We're in Wisconsin. Yeah, I am, a, I am from the Milwaukee suburbs. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I understand wind chill very well. <laughs> Uh, so these guys, they're out there, like a lot of them don't have gloves or hats or anything because they probably don't even own those items. Oh, right. 
Now, we cycle through various members of the NWO, none of whom really say anything other than they're going to change the world, uh, NWO, baby, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of general platitudes. Uh, it, it takes several minutes, and it's not very informative or very cool. It's It's been uh, much derided in the years since. Uh, Kevin Nash in a 97, uh, uh, or excuse me, in a shoot interview focused on 97, kind of goes off about how stupid he thought it was. Uh, Eric Bischoff, basically, his his sole defense for why he did this is it's something you wouldn't expect. No other wrestling pay-per-view would do anything like this. They use limos, so we're going to use garbage trucks. He was literally, by his own admission, just doing things that are different because they were different. Yeah. I also, like, want to get through the pay-per-view. I feel like it's very symbolic that they're bringing trucks load of garbage just to dump <laughs> into this arena. <laughs> But we then cut to a live shot. Uh, there's no w- way you can tell her anything. I only know that from listening to Neil Pruitt's podcast all about this pod, uh, this pay-per-view. But when we see the NWO group up outside the arena and then come through the door, that's live. Everything on the garbage trucks was taped the night before. Hmm. Uh, they come through the door of the arena with Sean Waltman first and Hogan third. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but sandwiched between them is a bald, bespectacled gentleman in a Minnesota Vikings jacket. I didn't notice the jacket, but I definitely noticed the guy pushing his way through in front of Hogan. I didn't notice that. I must have completely missed that moment, but it sounds funny. I'm not sure if he's like a stalker fan or if he's just a guy who got the wrong door because he looks embarrassed. And immediately when they get through the door, he just he goes in a completely different direction from everyone else. Like he is he is very embarrassed that he is there in that moment and he knows he shouldn't be. Like, like the gif of uh, from The Simpsons of Grandpa Simpson walking into the burlesque house and walking out <laughs> yes. of the burlesque house, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Hogan says that tonight he has double, 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 double backup as he brought several of the Dallas Cowboys with him. Uh, more on that later. Eric says that it's time to address the crowd and wanders off while the rest of the NWO pose for the camera. We then cut to an intro montage mostly centered around Eric Bischoff in front of a podium full of microphones. He has a video screen behind him with NWO logos projected on it. Uh, this was shot earlier in the week in Chicago, back where Nitro was, and the look is intentionally evocative of Citizen Kane. Uh, not the promo necessarily, but that's the look they're going for with the, yeah. the big poster behind him and, and him talking to the podium. Eric says that he stands here before us tonight humbled by the event that is about to take place. To those who have risen to the challenge and joined the ranks of the NWO to change the face of the wrestling world, Eric says thank you. To those who have offered themselves as opponents, Eric asks, what the hell were you thinking? Uh, That package was put together by Neil Pruitt and senior editor of WCW Kemper Rogers, who wrote all of Eric's lines, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, I guess they, he kind of, Neil Pruitt says in the podcast, Eric as a boss was intimidating and gruff and rough around the edges, but as a talent, he was always very easy to work for. Uh, or work with, I should say. You know, they they gave him his lines. He went out there, he delivered them. Uh, and I thought the garbage truck truck stuff sucked, but I thought this part with his speech was really cool. Uh, what did you guys think? I th- I was kind of uh, with the garbage truck stuff. I thought it really like it really puts your wrestlers down to have them come in in literal trash bins. <laughs> but I th- I th- I think this. I liked the initial speech by Bishop, and I like the set that they have. I really actually yes. like like the screen, the three screens, and I I like the I like the voiceovers because it's different and in in a way that's not complete trash. 
But I mean, that that's just my opinion. I, I like the whole initial setup and the initial opening, regardless of the match quality, which we'll get to. Dave, how did you like uh, Eric's intro here? Oh yeah, I as far as like the the setup of the arena is concerned. I felt like there are there is like really good elements there. Mm-hmm. It could have been something like so much more special to me. Um, I I like the idea of like the, having that podium up there at the front, and it's kind of like um, like revolutionary speaking to their masses sort of thing, which would yeah. play well with like this this new world order takeover. I in in retrospect, it's like I wish they would have done a bit more with the mm-hmm. podium and maybe just mm-hmm. like lots of NWO members are getting an opportunity to kind of just like uh, get to speak before they wrestle or after they wrestle uh, kind of emphasizing more of like the NWO getting all the, the star treatment and WCW not getting any treatment, unable to speak sort of thing. Um, yeah. The promo I thought was really great. I think, I think this intro would have been so much better if they just skipped the, the dump truck thing and just started immediately with the promo. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would have worked really well. Also, the um, there's that line that Eric Bischoff says of uh, "We are in control," which mm-hmm. like in later years it, when they have like some of these more of these remixes of the NWO theme, that one shows up a lot. And so like when I heard it, I'm I'm like oh, I'm like yeah, that's a very it's a very familiar audio clip of him saying yeah. "We are in control," and that kind of has resonated for a long time with the NWO. So there's like. There's a lot of really, really good elements that are going on here, and mm-hmm. it just like doesn't quite work. Like I, I also really like the three screens, but I'm not a fan of the of the the light board that they have on the top because it just comes off as really low rent. Yeah, let me talk a little bit about the set, uh, so that the the listeners know what you're talking about. Sure. Uh, when we get into the arena, we've got our first live shot. The camera starts in tight on the NWO logo, which is projected on a video screen. Then it pans out to show that there's actually three large video screens. Uh, they are at the top of a set of st- a staircase that goes down into like a traditional entrance aisle. Uh, Eric is at the top of those stairs behind a podium, the same podium from the video. On one side of the stairs are a bunch of crates, like um, loadout boxes for rock bands that you'll see at concerts or in back of theaters anywhere. They've all got, like, the pay-per-view logo on them. There's a lot of bikers just kind of milling about. A lot of them are sitting on Harleys. Some of them are just sitting on the stage or on the crates. That's pretty cool. I like that general look. Uh, To our right of the stairs, there is a live band who is... You see them playing a lot, but at least as far as the audio that we get from the show feed, I think we only actually hear the band playing once. Uh, But I So I have no idea if they were legitimately playing you know, to the arena or if maybe they played before or after the show or what, but uh, they look bored most of the time. <laughs> right. On the left, there is a seating area where on some of the crates, Eric and DiBiase, they just, they, they have no table or booth or anything. They just sit on like these big wheeled crates and they do their commentary there. Uh, the camera then pans over to the ring, which is all black with black ropes and a white NWO logo in the middle of it. Uh, I think the set, like Dave was saying, I think there's elements where it looks really cool. It looks like a rock show. Um, I think at a stadium as opposed to an arena, they could have maybe expounded on this idea and it would have been cooler. Uh, But as far as the look of the show goes, it is very unique. It stands out a lot. And I thought that just divorced of any context of the rest of the the night, 
I thought the set was really cool. I liked it, and I liked the black ring with the black ropes. I thought all that was was pretty damn cool, actually. Yeah, I also really... The, the aesthetic of the show is great. Independently of everything else, I agree. The aesthetic is awesome. They also, like, later on start doing that weird fisheye thing, almost, ab- above the ring, which I thought was good, which it, it's very complimentary to say that because one thing that WWF in this era always had about over WCW is WCW sometimes their production could come off as very low rate, whereas yes. WWF was always on it they, they you never ever thought you were watching a b show with them whereas wcw their cameras and their sets a lot of the time would come off as the b show yeah i completely agree and uh to give the listener some idea what she's talking about they've got two guys with cameras that are on the end of boom uh like a long boom stick so they're holding a boom that at the end has a f- uh, camera on it called a lipstick camera and when they go to that footage it is like she said it's it's got that kind of fisheye lens on it um, it's something you just don't see very much, and a lot of the times it's cool. A couple of the times we get it, and the, it's just the camera doesn't have a good angle on it, so there was no reason to cut to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but when it works, I do think, like, hey, that's different. They're helping this event feel special. They're help it, helping it feel unique, and and I, I like that. Dave, did you like the, the boom cameras that they used throughout this? Uh, on occasion, uh, I, I, I do like – I like the idea because it's something – new and different and to do that with a with a big pay-per-view is i i like the the risk they're taking doing something like that um sometimes it doesn't work because like for one reason or another like the just the quality of the video varied sometimes Mm -hmm. it looked good and sometimes it it looked it i don't know if it just like it just was a lower quality or something like that but um i like i like the idea behind that and then uh, just going back to another thing you said, the other thing I really liked was the ring. Make just making it completely different with like uh, a stark contrast of the color of the mat, just mm-hmm. immediately tells you that this is a different show than a WCW show. And I thought that worked out very well too. Um, I was a little bit surprised that the NWO logo was like was uh, like straight on there and not like at an angle. Like they, oh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I just would have expected it to be like tilted or askew or something like that. Again, I there's a lot of elements of it that I really like as far as the 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 whole set is concerned. I'm just like, man, if I'm like an older guy like Ted DiBiase, I'd be unhappy with the fact that I'm <laughs> sitting leaning against crates for like three hours. He's also put he's also like uh put a full foot and a half lower than Bischoff just the way they're arranged. So yeah. Bischoff is like noticeably uh, on a, a higher position. Like, li- yeah, <laughs> it just is very funny that he insisted on that. Isn't he uh, Ted DiBiase at this point retired because of back issues? <laughs> yes. Give the poor man a chair. <laughs> right. And I felt like the way that they set up the announcers just kind of being like a little bit like uh, loose and like they're hanging out. Their buddies hanging out watching together. Yes. I, yep. I was like. How come other rest, other NWO members didn't like show up and and do like guest parts and just vary up the uh, commentary for each match? Like especially yeah. like later on, you're gonna see like they're they're very confident in giving Buff Bagwell the microphone now. Mm-hmm. And and how come he didn't just like just show up and just do commentary on a match or have Hall and Nash show up point. Yeah. show up earlier? They could have really just mixed it up as far as the commentary is concerned. Especially since on uh, Nitros when they take over. It varies from week to week as far as who they put on the microphone. Yep. Uh, so just to get to the last elements of the set, 
uh, Dave described a little bit of a light board, which is basically above those three screens I mentioned. They've got a set of lights. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many, but they use them throughout the night to spell different words. A lot of the times it just says NWO or like during buffs match, it'll say buff or it says six. Um, it's in theory kind of a cool idea, but there's laid out in a grid like they are. There's a limited amount of letters they can make, and sometimes you can't read it very well. Uh, it's one of the things and the three screens go in this category, too. Where it's it's a cool idea, uh, but the execution just isn't what it could be to make that idea into something that would be like a real wow factor. So I thought like the light board, the three screens. There's there's just so many cool ideas, mm -hmm. and then either they don't execute them or they've got one idea. Like we've got these three screens, and they're about to use them uh, in a part that I'll talk about in a second to show Hogan, Nash, and Hall at the beginning of the show, and then the three screens are almost uh, all, all the way until the main event. They don't come up again. They, they do nothing almost the entire show. You know, nobody just thought, hey, we've got these things. How do we use them in a way that's cool? It's about time. It's about time. It's about time. It's about time. <laughs> we got a really great show tonight. WCW, as they knew it, will cease to exist tonight. This is NWO for life, as the outsiders would say. Sold out just for you because you're with us and we're part of you. So what you going to do? Let's throw it to DiBiase and our pretty boy, Eric Bishop. E-Money. Sold out. Sold out. Eric introduces three guys who I love so much and I know you do too and the three video screens suddenly show Hall, Nash, and Hogan. They're each shown talking to each other. It's kind of cool. It comes across like a live, you know, uh, screen where they're each on each screen and it's being filmed live from the back but it's actually all pre-taped and then cut up and each of them is being projected using two different projectors on those screens and it's all synchronized. It, it is pretty cool. It's a fun way to open the show, but like I said, it just never really comes up again. Mm -hmm. Down in the commentary area, Eric has Miss Elizabeth remove his leather duster and help him into a motorcycle jacket, like some sort of Sturgis version of Mr. Rogers. I, that was the thing I thought of too, was <laughs> definitely a Mr. Rogers vibe to that, which is like, I don't know if that makes him seem like the coolest guy around, but I thought, I thought, that, was, I thought that was funny. This, the depression that is Miss Elizabeth throughout her in, entire WCW run. Mm -hmm. Just they never knew what to I feel like they never quite got what to do with her. It gets worse later. It gets worse later oh. in w WCW. They, they never quite use her right. I mean, here it's OK, but. Well, I have in my notes that Liz's wordless role as Eric's unwilling wardrobe assistant is just a small preview of the way that women are going to be treated on the show tonight. And in WCW in general. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, something that I observed was um, recently I was doing so just off a little bit off topic here, but recently I was doing some watching a viewing of uh, WCW in 2000. And mm -hmm. in 2000, Miss Elizabeth was paired up with Lex Luger, who she was um, in a relationship with in real life at the time. And there's like, a world of difference in her demeanor 
when she's around someone that she actually wants to be around. Like she just, <laughs> she, she, she has like a lot more personality. She's like adding more to conversations and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, and like, we've seen it a lot of her always being paired up with people. She's not comfortable with being paired up with, especially like her ex husband, for example. <laughs> so I feel like they, yeah. they always put in like, and, and there's like times when she's with Russo and Russo's just like, just a disgusting man in general. Mm. <laughs> I don't think anyone would be happy being around him or, or like Bischoff and Bischoff's kind of known to be a little bit of a, a, like a weirdo in his own rights too. So sure. I, I think that she, I mean, I think sometimes she kind of wears her emotions on her sleeve. And when she is not reacting to a lot of stuff, it's probably because it's like, she's just not happy with the pairing that's going on right now. Eric will be doing commentary in that leather jacket, as well as some light blue jeans and a gray hoodie that is tucked into his jeans. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I have to point it out because I pointed out recently on the Clash of the Champions that Dusty Rhodes did not have a belt with his jeans. Eric does not have a belt with his jeans. Was this a 90s thing that I forget about? Did did people just walk around looking like dorks with no no belts on? It's insane. I, I think that might have been a 90s thing. <laughs> I'm, I, I can't quite remember, but it may have been. I, I wouldn't know because at the time, as a kid, the big thing was wearing really baggy pants. And mm-hmm. you needed belts with baggy pants, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, I don't understand this no belt world that they're living in, and, and I personally <laughs> don't want to be any part of it either. I, I don't want to be in any. As a ref, I can't be part. I, on principle, can't be a part of a world with no belts. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Eric finally gets the, on the headset to welcome us to the show, and then gets annoyed at DiBiase for not facing the camera. But Ted can't figure out his headset. And this cool show run by Renegade Outlaws is already feeling like watching your drunk uncles try to figure out the Nintendo Switch controls after Thanksgiving (laughs) dinner. (laughs) We then go to ring intros, which tonight are not handled by friend of the show David Penzer, but instead pre-recorded comments by friend of the show Neil Pruitt. Uh, Penzer told me that he was at the show and that he did some pre-show, like, warm-up of the crowd, but then in a little skit that was uh, before the pay-per-view went live, the NWO ran him out of there. And then he got the rest of the night off. Uh, oh, yeah, because did, did he mention that he was also helping with, like, production stuff at this time, too? Yeah, he would just kind of help out with whatever he could on the production side backstage. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't mind. I really actually kind of liked the voiceovers. Um, it was different. It's it's a part of me liking the whole aesthetic of the production and every everything that went along with it. I, I really didn't mind them at all. I would say that I like the voiceovers. I think it was fine. I think it was generally decently funny to make fun of the baby faces in a in a fairly like nothing was that cutting with the notable exception of some uh, questionable comments about Eddie Guerrero that we'll talk about. Yeah, I, I know exactly which ones you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the thing that I really do take issue with is none of the baby faces are given music because, uh, you know, it's supposed to be like they're walking to the NWO territory so their their music has not been granted to them. I wish uh, they could have done something. It's like I don't know that it would have made sense to play their babyface music. Maybe you could say, well, that doesn't. Why would the NWO do that? It's just it's such a part of wrestling to give the crowd an idea of who's coming out to get them to give that Pavlovian response of cheering for the guys they recognize once they hear the music. I thought almost all entrances by babyfaces were a thousand times flatter than they would have been had we got to hear their music uh and it just didn't make i get why the end i get 
if we're going by perfect verisimilitude, I get why the NWO would do that. Yeah. But in just terms of television production of a wrestling event, it was a bad choice. It sucked. I didn't like it. Yeah, I agree 100%. It, 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 it really gave no like rhythm or feeling for any of the matches because mm-hmm. they're, they're introducing guys and like the crowd doesn't know when to react because it's, it's a lot of times it's very hard on a big stage to like see exactly when a wrestler comes out, especially considering some people are sitting really uh, uh, high up or possibly, you know, back then ob- obscured seating was a huge thing mm-hmm. considering everything always sold out. And they don't have the giant screens that, venues have now so that you can just watch the show on a giant screen should your seat not be that great yeah and then it doesn't also doesn't i mean it doesn't help when the the voiceover is giving some sort of sarcastic remark rather than like (laughs) yeah just like saying their name right away so there's a lot of like there's a lack of rhythm for like the crowd to be able to cheer for the wcw guys my only my question was um did they want to create an environment that kind of forced fans to cheer for the NWO guys to make it feel like an NWO-centric pay-per-view. I, I wasn't quite sure if maybe that's what they were trying to go for. With um, It feels like that a little. Yeah, It does, but then at the same time, they book things where heel ref stuff that no crowd on Earth is going to cheer for. Right. You know, yeah. so it's, it's this thing with the NWO where they they always want it both ways. They want it to be a cool heel faction of renegades, but also it's a bunch of dorky losers who slip on banana peels at the same time, you know? Right. And like we've mentioned before, um, the cool factor is really Hall and Nash, and that's about it. And when yes. you look at how big the NWO is, that means the majority of the NWO actually is not cool. <laughs> how big it is already. This is only like six months in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, when we've been doing our nitros, it actually pretty much by like September of uh, 96, by then, that's like when Vincent and Daviasi started appearing. So it was getting bloated like really early. Yeah, and actually, I guess this is as good a time as any because uh, I think when I first, you know, I put out that we wanted to talk to independent wrestling people about Nitro during the quarantine, and somebody actually tagged you under my tweet, Katie, because you're somebody, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you got into wrestling long after Nitro is off the air, but you are also someone who went back and has seen every episode of Nitro uh, since. Uh, Not literally every single episode. So yes, I got into wrestling in 2003, which was probably the worst time to start watching considering (laughs) it was was basically the AAA train of terror, as people put it now. But uh, I, a couple, about, I want to say like three or four years back, I started, I had never really watched the whole Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. So I turned it on just out of curiosity to see it from a historical pay-per-view and just like, I'm just going to keep watching because everyone always talks about the fall of WCW and I want to see it for my own eyes. Mm-hmm. And now I have nightmares about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you're like uh, you're able to speak to us from the future because, of course, uh, Dave has seen a lot of these. He was watching WCW when it was on. I was not. So uh, most of this I'm living for the first time, whereas Dave is getting to revisit parts of his childhood. But talking to people like you guys that have seen this stuff, and and, uh, and I was thinking about this a lot with this show because, of course, you know, right now, even a bad Nitro, when we cover it for the show, it's not that hard to get through. But by the end of this pay-per-view, I was so mad that I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do 
three-hour 1999 nitros that just suck from start to finish. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I can possibly do that. It's gonna. Be... I don't know how you're gonna do it either. <laughs> anyway, going back to the match, Neil Pruitt says our first dope uh, challenger is from somewhere north of the border, and then announces him as Chris. I should have stayed with hockey, Jericho. Uh, out next, billed as the best man in Japan, is Masahiro Chono. Nick Patrick is in the ring to ref this match, as he will ref all matches tonight mm. in black jeans, boots, and NWO, and a backwards NWO cap. <laughs> heel Nick Patrick was the best <laughs> heel ref. Like, regardless of everything that's happening around him, his heel refing is something else. And it's so hard to ref a whole show alone. He refs the whole show. And he's not, like, doing the most exertion, uh, exertion as, like, a heel ref because he, he's kind of, by nature, kind of refing lazily. That's mm -hmm. what his character's trying to portray. But still, as the show goes on, you start noticing they let him run to the back between matches, probably yes. to, like, chug water or something. <laughs> that's exhausting. Uh, like, credit to Nick Patrick here, man. <laughs> it is pretty crazy. Every time an, uh, the heel comes out, uh, Nick Patrick walks ahead of them so like you see him in about half the matches you see his entrance such as it is because yeah he's like you said he's running back there he's probably toweling off drinking up it is a long night for Nick Patrick yeah he's not the only one it's a long night for either. <laughs> It's a long night for all of us, but it was longer for Nick Patrick. Yeah. Last couple of episodes, I have just been very vocal about how much I hate uh, cricket officiating as being an angle. And now we have, like, the apex. <laughs> we have the, the Mount Everest <laughs> of bad officiating for this whole show. And it's a, it's just, it'll just be a running broken record if we bring it up every single time. So I'm just going to say right now <laughs> that this is awful. And they should have figured out some sort of plan to switch up their refereeing to some degree. Yeah, know? just say that the since WCW titles are being defended, the championship committee has negotiated with the NWO, and a certain percentage of them have to be refed by WCW referees. Right. Like, that's very easy. I just did that off the top of my head. Yeah. You know? Like, I won't say for sure if it was the best decision or not to have him ref the whole show. I'm just giving him credit as a ref <laughs> for doing it and not passing out because that is, I've seen what that does to refs. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just being in front of a crowd that long is... Yeah, it, you have to be a certain level of one in cardio shape and two professional to be like, okay, I'll just ref this whole show. The only person I've personally seen do it is Bryce Remsburg. I've seen him ref entire shows by himself. If anyone could do it and remain engaging the whole time, like Bryce, that's the man yeah. for the job right there. Eric says that he is surrounded by a bevy of beauties who came out to hang out with the NWO tonight, and we see one woman astride a motorcycle. Eric and DiBiase fawn over her as she awkwardly looks over her shoulder to see the ring as her bike is pointed her bike is pointed up the aisle, so she's sitting correctly on her motorcycle, so she has to crane her neck backwards. Eventually, later on in the show, you see that she's finally just sitting sideways on the bike, so she doesn't have to sit so awkwardly. <laughs> but at the start, she's trying to sit on the bike properly, and it looks like she's going to give herself some real neck problems craning back. Uh, DiBiase and Eric then reveal that they were actually fawning over her bike, not the woman. Uh, just a taste of the misogyny that's to come mm. later on in the show. Patrick calls for the bell, and here to call all the action is a man who wouldn't be caught dead in Iowa. It's Dave Amatorn. <laughs> right. 
Uh, so yeah, the bell rings, and after about ten seconds in, we get both wrestlers stopping and having uh, conversations with Nick Patrick. So <laughs> that is how the show is going to go. Um, at one point, DiBiase refers to Masahiro Chono's uh, finisher, the STF, and he ponders what it stands for, um, and he suggests that it is actually a submission through fear. Um, the STF actually stands for the step over toe hold face lock. But I actually like Ted DiBiase's answer more. Submission through fear is a Submission good name. Submission to fear. That's not bad yeah. for off the top of his head like that. Uh, so this match is slow and prodding, mainly due to Chono being on offense and opting for a methodical approach. I, I, I feel like that he's doing what he can to establish himself as a heel, and he's kind of letting that reflect in his wrestling approach. But the result is a very, very slow match. Mm-hmm. Um, we also receive a USA chant in a match between a Canadian and a Japanese wrestler, which is pretty sweet. I assume they were cheering for uh, Nick Patrick. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. they were cheering for Nick Patrick. <laughs> I believe Bischoff says something to the effect of, yes, we know where we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Because they're not cheering for either of the competitors, so they just mu- must be reminding us where we are. Yeah, there are there are some moments that I like with Bischoff where he's like, I'm the heel, so I can rag on the fans as much as I want to. Like he, he definitely does get some shots in there at, at some points. Uh, during the match, also, uh, Liz, Harlem Heat, Barbarian and Meng, Nobbs, Arn Anderson, Randy Anderson, and Deborah and Mongo McMichael all show up and sit in the in the fans to watch the show. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. Like it, sh- you know, it showed that the WCW roster is invested in this. That they showed up just to just to watch what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean that. It was um, what is the 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 Chekhov's gun sort of thing? Yes, where it's yeah. like I was anticipating a big old brawl at some point or another, um, mm-hmm. which spoiler doesn't not actually happen. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, now that you point out there, there is one way in which it pays off that works really well that we'll talk about yes. later. But you're right; for the most part, it does seem like something that's set up and then not really paid off. Um, at one point, after Chris Jericho hit an insiguri, uh, Bischoff is adamant that it's actually a jump back leg round kick. <laughs> yes, that's right. Which yeah. it sounds made up and when you when you look that up on on YouTube or anything like that, the person that's doing a jump back leg round kick is in a standing position in front of their uh their opponent and then jumping up and kicking them in the head. They don't have their their leg up already. So mm-hmm. nothing about that makes sense. But it's also a thing that shows up on occasion during the show where Bischoff just gets into his like whole like mood basically about about people that claim to be martial artists. Yeah, he's desperate to show you on through commentary that he knows karate. Yeah. Another thing that he says earlier in the match, uh, he says that this show tonight is the real deal because they're not giving tickets away at Seven Eleven. Uh, he's taking a shot, of course, at the Royal Rumble for some of the papering they did. Mm. But just a reminder that the paid gate for the Royal Rumble was four hundred and eighty thousand dollars, right? And the paid gate for this show was sixty eight thousand dollars, <laughs> right? So I, I maybe think shut up. Big difference there. <laughs> I think sitting in a crowd of about five thousand people <laughs> really should. He, he should save save that comment for another day. Yeah. Uh, the first real attempt at a pin is from Jericho when he does a German suplex, and we get a uh, a purposely slow count. And I wrote down, "Fuck this shit," <laughs> <laughs> uh, because 
that is the, the, the other thing that goes on during every one of these matches. And it's sort of, it's sort of like, it's another, another thing where it's, where you realize that there are these ideas that like from an NWO standpoint makes sense, but from an actual like production and entertainment standpoint, it, it just comes off as like every match is going to feel the same too. Yeah. Yeah, I hope you guys are ready for slow counts if you're listening. Because oh, yeah. that's going to come up a lot. Yes. <laughs> uh, eventually, Masahiro Chono takes out the world's smallest table from under the ring, uh, which surprises Debiase, who says it isn't time for a sushi yet. Oh, <sighs> eventually, Chono pushes Jericho off the top rope, off the top and through the table, which is this kind of funny moment because Jericho like hesitates at first to go through it. So then Chono comes back and just like pushes him. Um, <laughs> and then he drags him back into the ring where he hits the running boot for the pinfall victory. The Yakuza kick. It's, it's as it's oh, known in yeah. New Japan, um, which is funny because they call it, they call it the mafia kick on here. Like they had to translate Yakuza. Oh, sure. which I thought was funny. <laughs> uh, now, just before we, we, if we're going to talk about this match or not, um, I just had a fun little bit of trivia uh, for this feud. Um, at Wrestle Kingdom 12 in 2018, during his match with Kenny Omega, Chris Jericho pulled a similar tiny table out from underneath the ring and proceeded to taunt Masahiro Chono at ringside with it, saying, you remember this? I oh. remember that. Yeah, I remember that. So, that's awesome. I, I've seen that match, but I, I don't remember that spot. That, I mean, I remember the table, but that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, so he, ma- he made uh, 20, 21 years later... He's still he's still bitter about Chono pointing through the table and sold out. Uh, so what did we think of this match, Katie? Uh, let's start with you. I I agree with kind of what um what Dave said. It was a good technical match, but it did get slow. I kind of just basically flat agree with him on that. Yeah, I think that it would have been these guys are wrestling an American style match and I would have preferred to see them wrestle like Chono's style a, a Japanese style match mm-hmm. and maybe if he were doing something that was maybe a little more, you know, his comfort zone. I think, like, we've seen Jericho can do that style. Uh, so it, it maybe would have been a little more fun to see that than what they did. So this wasn't bad, but it wasn't good, and it was not a good opener as far as, like, getting the crowd invested in the action. Yeah, and we've taught before every time we've seen Chono wrestle that we're, like, we're trying to be as fair as we can with him because he is a legend in New Japan, and we, both of us agree, we have not, seen a whole lot of his new japan work um it's just that same here yeah it's just that um whatever style or approach he's taking in the in wcw it's just, it's not coming off as very um not not very athletic or very like energetic by any means you know what i noticed this time is i think of him as a tall guy i think because he wears full tights instead of like trunks I think of him as being a big guy, but during this match, I was like, he's roughly the same as Jericho, and Jericho's not an especially big guy. Yeah. I don't know. Did you? Does that make it? Am I crazy, or did you, like, when you think of Chono, do you think of him as a tall guy? I think I think he likes to wrestle as the big guy in a match. Yeah. And, and maybe that also kind of, like, makes your, your mind think that he's bigger than he really is. Like, he plays himself off as being a, the bigger wrestler in any of his mm-hmm. matches. The impression I get with him in this match is that he's really trying to play as the heel to let the crowd know that he's a heel and it, he let that translate through his wrestling style. And it just, mm-hmm. it's not, it does not come off as very engaging or, or just like, just a very low energy. Um, even, even like going through a table did not 
really wake me up to this match, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, sure. it didn't help that the match ended immediately after that. Like, like Kate was saying, it, it's not, it's not a very like energetic. It's not a good like opening match to really get the crowd pumped up. Um, this seems like more of like a middle of the card sort of match where maybe, I mean, nowadays if you book this, you probably would do that ladder match right away. Yes, I think you're right. I think that would be the way it would get laid out in 2020. They have a hard time this whole show hyping the crowd up in general because it's just such a heel show. Mm-hmm. Like, purely heel, so everyone kind of already knows what's going to happen. Even, and we're we're just about to get into it, uh, but even with the Miss NWO thing where, like, this wouldn't be appropriate for 2020 either, and should, but if you're going to do a Miss NWO contest, you could easily hype up a bunch of these fans, 97 wrestling fans, by having young attractive women out there Mm -hmm. and doing some kind of beauty contest instead these segments which the only excuse for doing them is that you're hyping up the crowd is they kill the crowd because the whole thing is a mean-spirited joke on not only the women involved but like on the crowd itself you know uh but but i suppose we should talk about it a little bit more before we start getting into our thoughts on it i have a note here about miss nwo it just says who the hell is this discount mark madden the guy that's announced <laughs> oh, the, that's hosting the thing God, yeah yes you, i just want to smack that guy every time i hear his voice i will tell you all about jeff Katz in just a moment <laughs> okay that's his name because they barely name him the whole time yes and if that's they true. did i kept missing it <laughs> Uh, Bischoff hypes the Miss NWO contest, and we go to a montage of letters and pictures sent, allegedly, by women who wanted to be a part of the contest. Now, by the standards of today, this montage where we're showing these women and and Eric and DiBiase are kind of making fun of them, as well as the whole thing, uh, by today's standards, it's awful. But I want to make it clear, because a lot of times when stuff like this comes up, people are like, oh, well, that was a different time. I was 14 in 1997, and I can tell you that at this at 97 was mean-spirited bullshit that, mm. like, would have come across with as just having no class to any normal person watching it. Like, this, you can't just say oh, it was a different, like, I get that it was a different time is the reason it didn't become, like, more of, a, like, a news story in the mainstream press or something. But, like, it was not okay. People generally did not think this was an okay way to treat people right. in 1997. Yeah, and all these women seem to be confused, like, that they're out there. Like, like I feel like they were told that they were auditioning to get to, to, get to hook up with Kevin Nash, and then they all showed <laughs> up, and instead they were in some sort of weird motorcycle-like stadium arena contest where they had to go out unprepared. And, that, like, it just shows on all their faces. They're all so, like, not aware of what's going on yes. and weren't yes. prepared. Yeah. There's no way, there's no way I would believe that these... These women were told, we're going to interview you during this show. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely not. Right. Half of them later on can't even hear the dude <laughs> inter- interviewing them because of the acoustics. There's a couple times later on where he tries to ask them questions and the girls are just like, what? <laughs> yeah. What did you say? I can't hear you. Now, during this montage of women who didn't make the cut, uh, they're showing all these pictures. Some of them appear to be high school age girls, as near as I can oh, tell. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric and Ted alternate between sexual innuendo, sarcastic compliments, and outright insults, and the crowd, which can't see any of this, is chanting boring. Eric says that the women that they did choose to be part of the contest uh, were chosen because they had their own means to travel to Cedar Rapids, and they had their own place to stay because the NWO sure wasn't going to pay for any of it. Eric then tosses us to Jeff Katz. Uh, I feel like 
discount bin Mark Madden is a perfect way of describing this guy. <laughs> that that really speaks to how much he sucks because Mark Madden sucks. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And let's go now to Jeff Katz. Here's a kid that's real. I mean, he's got his work cut out for him. Now take it, Jeff. Going to ask him a few. Questions. Ladies and gentlemen, are Whoa. you ready to crown Miss NWO? Well, let me ask you, do you like biker chicks? Because we got them. Oh, boy, do we got them. Let's get right to it. We're going to be asking each one of these lovely, lovely ladies a couple questions. Going to find out if they have what it takes to be Miss NWO. Hello. Let me ask you, what does the term NWO going all the way mean to you? Alicia. Oh my, is that it? So far. Well, she's a quiet woman, but hey, that might be what it has, you know, what it takes here in the world of the NWO. Let's go over to number two here. Tell me, Kevin Nash is known as a big man in the wrestling industry today. What would you do to tame this big, big man? Anything it takes. Could you go into a little detail? You minx. Oh, you hurt me. Folks, we will be back here all night finding out who will be Miss NWO. At this point, let's go back to more NWO action. Jeff Katz is a college dropout from Michigan who worked in talk radio since he was a teenager. He's actually only like 23 or 22 here. He looks 50. I know. He's. It's a rough 22. <laughs> That's the roughest 23. That's like how Arn Anderson was like a rough 37 around when this happened. And he looks like 60. The difference is Arn Anderson looks like a badass. Yeah. So. <laughs> Katz somehow befriended WCW promoter Zane Bresloff, who recommended Eric Bischoff give the kid a shot at WCW. Katz has done some intern type work, but he was also early in on the ground floor of working on the WCW website and has done internet commentary for several past pay-per-views. He's described by some people in the company at the time as a protege of Eric Bischoff's, uh, but on 83 Weeks, Eric says that he's like, no, I never thought of him as my protege. We never hung out outside of work or anything like that. So it doesn't, it seems like Eric maybe liked him as a coworker, but didn't have any special relationship. I, it would make sense if he thought it was his protege, why he's given this prominent on-screen role, but who knows why they chose Katz. Uh, to give you an idea of his future, though, because that's where most of the interesting stuff with Jeff Katz comes from, he leaves WCW in 1999, briefly works for the NWA, but then goes to work for New Line Cinema, uh, where I found conflicting information. His dad may or may not have worked there. That may be how he got hired there in the first place. Uh, but he started as an intern. He works all the way up to uh, an executive, and he's credited as the producer on several films, including Snakes on a Plane and Freddy vs. Jason. Wow. wow, that's quite the resume. <laughs> he was also the chief internal voice in the company behind the long-rumored uh, Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash that they wanted to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that, I remember Dad. that rumor. That would have been incredible. Yeah, he was the guy who wanted to do that, and when it didn't happen, he became the writer on a Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash comic that uh, was put out by a DC imprint. I forget if it was Vertigo or somebody else. Uh, and that he managed to parlay that into writing for the genuine DC series Booster Gold. So he's a wrestling announcer, on-screen personality, then a film producer, then a comic book writer... 
He is also somewhat famously reviled in modern wrestling circles for the Wrestling Retribution Project, a twenty, a 2011 promotion he launched after a successful $104,000 Kickstarter campaign. He used that money to put together a roster that included Timothy Thatcher, Joey Ryan, Chris Hero, Amazing Red, Brian Cage, Eli Drake, Luke Gallows, Carl Anderson, MVP, Colt Cabana, Sammy Callahan, and Kenny Omega. Damn. Well so they they taped 13 episodes of the show. Uh, one thing to know about it, every single member of the roster played a new character. Oh. So some of these were people you'd heard of, but like Joey Ryan was a different guy. Oh. Uh, Kenny Omega was a different guy. So despite fans paying him over $100,000 and uh, despite all the additional funding that he got from other investors... Cats failed to release any footage whatsoever until March of this year. <laughs> I kind of remember in passing hearing about this. Yeah, some of I it remember leaked hearing on the, about this vaguely earlier in the year. Some of it leaked on the internet a while ago because uh, Joey Ryan had asked Cats for some of the footage uh, to send to WWE as like a kind of a tryout reel that he was sending them. This was years ago. And uh, then when it didn't pan out with WWE, Joey Ryan put his portions up on YouTube himself. And then Cats, uh, basically in March, when things went into quarantine, he was like, everyone, I feel really bad about this. I had kind of a mental breakdown. I couldn't deal with the pressure. I'm so sorry I never put out this show. But everyone's in lockdown, and I'm just like you. I'm all depressed, so I'm going to upload a bunch of the raw footage to my YouTube channel. So you can now go on YouTube and you can you can actually watch what was filmed uh, back in 2011 with that roster, that amazing roster. Uh, and he's just asking that people consider donating money to organizations such as the Red Cross if they if they watch it and like it. So he's trying to make an apology. You know, I I feel for the guy in some respects because I've seen people who had Kickstarters that were successful beyond their means to um, produce what was expected of them. And, like, it causes pretty extreme stress and depression in those people. And, it, you know, they may have had the best of intentions, but it just comes to rubber meeting the road and they just can't get it done, you know? Katz asks the crowd if they're ready for the women and gets a big pop. Do you like biker chicks, he asks, to complete silence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is, uh, where was this again? Iowa? Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Yeah. Oh yeah, so so they don't know what it, they they barely know what a motorcycle is in Iowa. They know corn. <laughs> they know lots about corn. Yeah, yes, it, yes. Th this it should is, have been uh, women of. Yeah, this is definitely a know your audience moment here. <laughs> he then asks your mom if she was wearing biker gear. What the phrase "NWO is going all the way" means to her. She apparently says Malaysia. That's what it sounds like, and that's what the closed captioning says. So, hmm. as far as I'm concerned, that's what she says. Okay. We'll, we'll go with that as canon. Katz just looks at her and goes, is that it? And she says, so far. And he just walks away. It's like the whole time this is going on, he keeps trying to get them to say, like, vulgar stuff. Yes. Mm. But the, but they're all just... I have a note here that says, all the motorcycle girls are saying the same vague shit about doing whatever it takes to be Miss NWO. Yes. Because you can only imply prostitution. <laughs> you can't outright <laughs> state it. He then goes over to ask your mom's friend, who is a little rough around the edges, what she would do to tame a big, big man such as Kevin Nash. Anything it takes, she lamely replies. Katz presses her into go into detail, and she just blankly looks at him, <laughs> and he calls her a minx, and that's it. That's the whole segment, 
And if you hated that, I have bad news because it's going to happen five more times. Yeah. Now, would it surprise you both to learn that the idea behind the Miss NWO segments was Eric Bischoff remembering a story that a friend told him about being in college and he and his college buddies had a contest to see who could bring home the ugliest girl. No, that doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me at all. Of course not. That sounds like exactly what, what I would have expected <laughs> that concept to come from, is some th- dumb thing Eric Bischoff thought of. Yeah, Eric wanted to have on women who were not young and conventionally TV pretty, uh, with a couple exceptions, and I'm not I'm not calling any of these women ugly or anything no, like that. I love each and every every one of these Absolutely. women. Absolutely. Just on a personal level, they're all just out there being themselves, even if they're confused it's what's going on and they're personally being taken advantage, advantage yes. of. All these women are like the best kind of like, uh, I don't want to say white trash because that's derogatory, but just like late 90s, like suburban, rural white woman. And they're all just happy to be there. <laughs> Growing up in Minnesota and Wisconsin, respectively, I think we all can agree we've met hundreds of these women mm-hmm. who are on the show. These women are the heroes of NWO Sold Out. They- <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> I really, I like the many examples of the times where Katz is like, well, I'm going to press you harder to try to get a more like uh, lewd answer. And they're always like, no, I'm not really interested in saying more. Or they just yeah. look at yeah. him. Or they're just like, no, nah, no, I'm done. That was that was it. My favorite is my favorite is the one with the mullet, by the way, the one with the actual mullet. Yes. that they show a couple times. I believe that was number two, the one who just spoke, uh, who Jeff okay. Cass called a minx. Oh. Now, nobody on record in any of the research I did was sure where the women came from. Like, no one can remember wh- who found them or where. They just found them in line outside. <laughs> it was probably David Crockett. Uh, who worked for WCW. You know, he's been around since the Crockett promotion days. Jim Crockett's brother. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who, like, if they need dump trucks, they're just like, David, get us some dump trucks. And his <laughs> job is finding that. If they need to rent a limo to blow up in some town, that's just his job. So they probably said, find us some biker chicks. And Dave Crockett went out and found some biker chicks. Yeah. And who knows how. And they probably got paid $200 in cash. And that was like, that was it. It was done. Eric purposefully did not prep them. Uh, you know, they, they were vaguely aware that they were going to be on stage and probably ask some questions, but he did not give them any funny answers or tell them what the questions were going to be because he thought, like, live interplay was more spontaneous and entertaining. Uh, and if you hear him talk about the show, which he admits was bad, this is one of the few things that he, like, specifically is willing to admit he, where he made a massive mistake. He's like, I should have given them funny answers. It was a real miss for me to just think that somehow because it was live, it would be cool. He was like, it sucked. It was boring. It was stupid. Right. Uh, he does not like apologize for just making fun of them the whole time. He's like, no, it's entertainment. Ha ha. It's funny. That's a very Eric Bischoff like <laughs> it admission is. of a mistake where it's like, I'll admit to the things that are, are that don't paint me as an awful person. Yeah, but the stuff where it's like I was misogynic or whatever and and crude, crude and stuff like that, he he mm. just he'll ignore that part of it. <laughs> yes, it's it's honestly worth unfortunately noting that at the time in wrestling, wrestling in this period was notoriously like as a whole misogynistic. Mm. Like, oh sure, you couldn't win. Yes. Like there were a couple really amazing women's wrestlers in this period that just deserved so much better and the rest of it was just like 
Like I won't I won't dump on her too hard because she did have her talents, but like Sable was the top of the WWF women's division. Mm-hmm. Let's let let let's say that outright. But like I don't know, did they did WCW still have Jackie at this point, Jacqueline? She has not yet debuted. I think she's she either debuts the night after the show or the week after, I believe. So like are, they have they have her at this point. She's one of the best women's wrestlers of that era. Mm-hmm. And she never has anything to do because look at what's happening around her as far as the women are. Yeah, they I mean they essentially signed Medusa just to do the title and the garbage angle because after that they have they they basically refuse to have her or any sort of women's wrestling. And this is considering they even did a tournament but it was like most half-assed tournament that you could possibly imagine for a new women's title that was won at Starcade and we've not heard a reference of since. <laughs> yes. It existed for a few months and then it just vanished into the abyss. Yes. Like they did the most half-assed introduction of a women's belt ever. Yeah. The NWO announcer then introduces Hugh Morris, who he says uh, his face is funnier than his laugh, and out comes Morris and Jimmy Hart. I find nothing funny about Hugh Morris. (laughs) I find it funny that tonight, and tonight only, he is doing a ripoff of the Dudleys. He's wearing wearing jeans and a tie-dye shirt. I didn't even catch that. He's never done that before. He'll never do it after. This is, as far as I know, the only show where he does that. It was like he wanted to see if someone would call him on it, and someone must have, and he was like, all right, back to my old gear I go. (laughs) Well, I mean, he's he's also wearing pants, which is like, Less you, you wear like more casual stuff when it is like a death match or falls <laughs> anywhere or no holds barred. That's kind of that a traditional true. thing. But yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it, because it's like that. I know the Dudleys are in ECW at this point, so you could have just stood him in there with like Big Dick Dudley, and no one would have mm-hmm. noticed the difference. The NWO B team music plays a second time, and out comes Bubba. His entrance says that he will flatten Conan like a Mexican tortilla in no time. Now, as I mentioned in our worldwide episode, this match, uh, which again is a Mexican death match, mm-hmm. was supposed to be Bubba and Conan. Oh, that explains that. Yes. And it was advertised on the episode of WCW Saturday Night that literally aired immediately before this pay-per-view. So like an hour before the pay-per-view started, they're still telling you Conan is going to be on the show. Uh, But Conan claimed that he had a scheduling conflict, Uh, he had a date in Mexico that he just couldn't miss, and because it's WCW, they just allowed him to not be here, there's no repercussions, he doesn't get in any trouble or anything, (laughs) it it seems like they didn't know until two days ago, they didn't change any of the advertising, they didn't change the Neil Pruitt voiceover, it's crazy how little they seem to care that some guy was just like, oh, no, I, I got a different thing. And they're just like, fine, whatever, it's, it's cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> not, the key here is that they don't care. <laughs> it, it's not like they're, it's not like that they're like in a desperate scramble to fix this. They're just like, <laughs> just fucking throw Humorous out there. Who cares? This is, I mean, unless they choose to do something else because this, the match didn't happen as planned, this was the blow-off to Bubba versus Conan as a feud. <laughs> right. And instead, it's just going to be blown off, presumably. I mean, I'm assuming they're not going to come back to it because it's not important enough to care about. But, like, it's just getting blown off with a different guy. It's so stupid. 
Man, this that that basically summarizes Ray Trailer's entire <laughs> WCW run. Just him deserving better. Absolutely. Because he was so incredible. Like the dude could have been a main eventer if there had been a spot for him in the main event in any of the companies he worked for. Mm-hmm. But the whole time he's in WCW, it's just this kind of shit. They never know what to do with him. As Bubba makes it to the ring, Eric addresses the Macho Man's comments from Monday's Nitro. He says, contrary to the Macho Man's claims that he's being blackballed, uh, he's actually just unneeded. Neither the WCW nor the NWO have any interest in bringing in the Macho Man. The match starts, and Morris has things under control in the ring, so Bubba heads the outside, where he's shoved into the ring steps. We get a low blow by Bubba when they're back in the ring, followed by another. Eric then claims that there's a lot of boxing fundamentals in Bubba's repertoire. Hmm. Interesting. An interesting claim. It's an interesting way to put that. Really, he's just. I think what they're trying. He's trying to say is like he's he's a hard hitter. He didn't have to yeah. compare it to boxing, so to speak. He's easy. He's 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 a heavy. Yeah, exactly. Morris clotheslines Bubba over the top rope. Bubba then grabs a chain and starts laying it into Morris's face. He whips it across the shoulder of Morris and again into his back. Morris hits some punches, manages to get the chain, and gets a shot back at Bubba. Morris hits No Laughing Matter and demands Nick Patrick count. When he starts demanding Patrick count, that's when we finally get the match explained to us because we're halfway through before anyone says that basically the rules are this is a last man standing match. Right. That that oh. just minutes go by before they explain that. And they actually never explain this other detail, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we've seen in the few last man standing matches we'd seen in the mainstream to this point, uh, like, I remember Randy Savage versus Crush at WrestleMania 10 was one of the other few ones where, like, the guy who's not getting counted out has to be in the ring before they will start the count. Do you remember that? Um, no, not off the top of my head. Well, in any case, that's the rule in this match. Okay. They will not count until the person who is not down is in the ring. Sounds like a WCW match. Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing that before. I think it's like kind of like with that and like strap matches where it's just like based on any given match on any given night, they'll switch up the rules slightly. Sure. So I'm I'm sure that's not like a standard. So, well, but it'll be interesting to see the next time we have a uh, a, a Mexican death match in WCW. <laughs> if the rules, Assuming we do. If the rules remain the same. Yeah, maybe that, maybe that aspect of it is specific to the mexican variation i don't know (laughs) right uh so patrick starts counting uh bubba uh, you know he starts going for the 10 count but he's going very slow because it's an nwo guy who's out he keeps trying to revive bubba as he counts like he's fanning his face and stuff (laughs) bubba eventually gets up and sneak attacks morris but morris quickly takes control again Morris takes out some knucks and uh, takes it to Bubba with punches as Eric claims that this is against the rules. Mm-hmm. I really, I like that kind of like obvious heel hypocrisy. Yeah. It's against the rules to use a weapon in a death match. <laughs> Morris is getting punched by Bubba, but he hits a mule kick low blow and then a low blow low blow. From there, they fight up the entrance aisle to the steps. Morris signals, yeah, oh, this part, God. Morris signals like he's going to do no laughing matter from the stairs. He goes about three stairs up from mm-hmm. where Bubba's laying down and, and acts like he's going to do low, no laughing matter. But, of course, without the bounciness of the ropes, that would never work. He would he would probably break his neck were he to really try. Uh, and thankfully, he realizes that he's he can't do it and he's not just going to do a backflip. So what he ends up doing is more of a very lame, twisting crossbody 
uh, except for instead of a crossbody, it's a splash because his opponent's on his back. Yeah. It's very, very ugly, and Bubba rolls out of the way and avoids it. Uh, a good concept, but they should have brought, like, a gym mat out and let him try it before the show just to see that, like, it cannot be done. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah, that whole spot was really sloppy. Like, he gets, he, he when he goes to slam Bubba, he just kind of dumps him. Mm-hmm. Instead of like actually slamming him before he goes up for the spot, they didn't think that one out well. I I just laughed when he tried to do that because <laughs> it, it looked it looked so awful and it looked like yeah it looked like someone that thinks they can do a backflip and then that's like oh this is what it actually looks like when they try a backflip. It was just funny to me. Bubba then takes the motorcycle from the first woman that Jeff Katz talked to uh, a while ago. He starts the bike, then drives down the aisle. I was so sure that the bike was not going to start because it seems like that happens half the time in wrestling, but he actually does get it <laughs> running. He drives down the aisle and then runs over, quote unquote, Morris, mm-hmm. uh, in that he drives very slowly towards Morris, and when he's close enough, Morris jumps out of the way and kind of lets their shoulders connect a bit so that it gives just enough of the impression of Morris's airborne momentum getting pushed in another direction. Technically speaking, there was a collision between the two. Yeah. Morris, of course, cannot answer the 10 count, and this shitty match is done after about 10 shitty minutes. (laughs) Uh, That was like the lamest attempt at vehicular uh, murder that I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, for a match that involved chains, brass knuckles, a motorcycle being used to kill another person, I can't believe how boring it was. Yeah, it was not a good match, and I will say that it was not Ray Trailer's fault. Dave, what do you think? Uh, the only thing I need to note here is that with this match, we have some history being made on our 20 Years of Nitro podcast <laughs> because since he tore his pants back in July of uh, 1996, oh, wow. Big Bubba finally has new pants. <laughs> wow. I was, That's a major milestone because you love paying attention to those pants. Yes. This is the end of an age. Yes. Yeah, because I think he wrestled either on Nitro or on uh, Clash of the Champions, he showed up on one of those with the old pants still. So I, I like yeah. the whole time I'm like, I'm like for this big pay-per-view match, he bought new pants in order to like really, <laughs> really like <laughs> make it a big deal for himself. I mean, I thought he Morris did the best he could when it came to that, like that motorcycle part, especially since like he's not a stunt double or anything like that. He right. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't blame the guys for how lame that was. Yeah. They were, they had to try to not kill themselves. So mm-hmm. it just was a bad idea, not necessarily their fault for the way it came across. This match was a bad idea. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't know when it was like when Conan said he wasn't going to show up. If they were like, they could have just done something else, just thrown another match out there. I mean, I'm sure they're. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's not just the guys that are there wrestling. Um that are the only wrestlers in attendance, they could have they yeah. could have thrown something else together. Or had or had or had these two wrestle just a plain match. And and mm-hmm. and maybe just be like, well we'll, well we can just do the match with Conan on Nitro, because we've just thrown those two together on Nitro anyway. Why not just wait? Instead of doing like a, a death match between two guys that clearly have not been wrestling each other and really don't have a, an idea of what they want to do for it. Bubba celebrates on the second rope with some vroom vroom motions, and then fuck, it's back to Jeff Katz. (laughs) Oh no! 
Sports NWO, and look at you. How you doing? I'm a Capricorn. Let's get to the uh, action at hand here. Rim shot. Let me ask you here. You know, Hollywood Hulk Hogan, he's got a lot of power in the uh, movie industry. What would you do to be in one of his movies? Whatever it takes. Oh, I like you. Let's head on over to number four. No, that's what the first girl said. That was oh. a duplicated answer. Look you at you. See. You are buoyant. Oh, my. You know, Boyant. it's been said that uh, Zillionaire Ted, uh, you know, he says everyone's got a price. I want to know what's yours, because I got like a buck fifty on me. You would walk away with uh, a big bill. Ooh. I'm not going to say what I wanted to say. Folks, we will be back with more of Miss NWO, the search. Uh, let's go back to more NWO action at Sold Out. Now let's hear it, Captain Virgil. We need some rock and roll. We need some women dancing behind us. Let's check this. He asked a woman with hair from 1993 Glamour Shots uh, what she would do to be in Hulk Hogan's next movie. Whatever it takes, she says. And we're already at the point where they're just repeating each other's answers. <laughs> I, I, it's funny you mentioned Glamour Shots because in that initial video package they showed of the auditions or whatever that was, I'm pretty sure there were some actual Glamour Shots. A hundred percent some of those were Glamour Shots, yes. Nice. The next woman is, uh, she's very busty. She's, I'm going to, again, she's conventionally probably the most attractive. She's certainly the crowd's favorite throughout the night. They're, they cheer whenever she's involved in anything. During one match, and I, I've got the notes, so I'll, I'll say it when it happens, but there's, like, one guy who's just shouting throughout the show that he loves her. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the point, the reason I bring up that she's busty is because Kat starts off his comments to her by saying, well, you're buoyant, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, he's terrible. I hate him. Uh, discount Mark Madden, everyone. Mm -hmm. He tells her that Ted DiBiase says that everyone has a price and asks her, her what hers is. She says that he would walk away from her with a big bill. That's it. Yeah. That's as clever as it gets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the, as clever as this night gets. <laughs> we then see the silhouette of a woman dancing behind one of those big three projection screens. Uh, this was an idea, a woman dancing in silhouette behind the screens. Eric took that from a lounge called the Shadow Box, which was at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And in theory, it would have been really cool if only the production team had lit the woman from a low angle so that her silhouette would take up most of the screen. It would be like a giant woman dancing in silhouette. But instead, they've shot her from straight behind, so it's just a normal-sized human on a giant screen that's probably 20 feet tall. So it like looks like an accident. It looks like it looks like the shadow of a woman in front of it just in the crowd. Uh, again, a great idea that could have been really cool and just terrible execution that robs it of any impact at all. We then see the NWO website, which Eric and Ted DiBiase, clearly they don't know how the internet works or anything about websites. They're trying to say it's cool, but they don't know what to say. Yeah. It's a great little nugget from the way... Like, if you ever watch a news story about the internet from 97, it's always the anchors being like, I don't know, these nerds say that you go on there. The World Wide Web. <laughs> the NWO announcer calls Jeff Jarrett a redneck and double J, which I would think is a risk given the current WWF lawsuit against WCW. Despite being a babyface, Jarrett is still wearing his dickhead heel gear, which is like, what a heat magnet set of gear i don't know why he's got that on i mean he doesn't wear anything else during this era but 
he's smart enough to figure out that he needs new gear. I don't know why he doesn't buy some. The weird quadruple suspender deal. Yeah. Ugh. Can we all just, before this match starts, take a moment to be thankful that it's Jarrett wrestling in this match and not Mongo? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I will say Jarrett's going to give us a better in-ring product. Mongo is going to give me some more funny stuff to talk about, though. Oh, Mongo <laughs> is the most unintentionally entertaining wrestler of all time. Because every time you watch him wrestle, you can't help but keep watching. Like, is this the time he's going to murder someone? <laughs> is, this, is, this the t is this the time he's going to hurt himself? Yeah, he's barely done anything in ring that we've been able to see. Uh, but I do think, looking ahead over the next few months, I think he finally starts getting more singles matches. And I'm very <laughs> intrigued to see who manages to survive them. The B-team music plays for the third match in a row, and Nick Patrick walks out for his third match in a row. And here comes Jared's opponent tonight. It's Wall Street, who is billed as M. Wall Street, but Eric calls him Michael Wall Street. Because who the fuck cares? Yeah. Great consistency, guys. Eric claims that this is one of the most underrated athletes in the sport today. Uh, fuck you, Eric. Yeah, I I said that is the most heelish thing he's done all night. <laughs> it's considering him underrated, and this is one of the matches you had me focus on, and the whole yeah. time I was watching him wrestle, I was thinking, Bischoff thinks he this is the most underrated <laughs> performer when he's still, like, he's like, a 15 or 20 year veteran even by this point and he just struggles <laughs> to get like the abdominal stretch on people well yes here to call all the action of a pay-per-view wall street versus jeff jarrett match is a man that i evidently hate <laughs> dave amator right. there is some magical ability where every wall street match just falls onto my lap to take care of oops yeah whoa <laughs> how did that get there <laughs> during this match it's like this whole show has been about nick patrick and if i bought this pay-per-view i would be so pissed off by this point and yeah, i thought that so many times while i watched this uh so anyway these two are having a garbage match and <laughs> while wall street is throwing Jarrett on the guardrails at ringside we cut to deborah looking like very worried and talking with Mongo, and you could just you you could you could totally figure out what this conversation is is. Where Mongo's like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Don't make me do this. Oh my god, <laughs> you're just gonna keep asking me. Okay, fine, I'll get up, but then I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine, that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. it's like dragging on, like the match is dragging on. Deborah is like slowly convincing Mongo to get closer and closer to ringside. I wish the cameras would focus on that more because it's way more interesting than Jarrett versus M. Wall Street. Mm -hmm. um, I also noted that I don't know if it's just humid in the arena, but Jarrett, Wall Street, and Nick Patrick are now like all pouring with sweat after just like a few minutes. Well, Nick Patrick's gotta st gotta be starting to get tired by this point. Yeah, yeah he's understandable. It, Jared should have better conditioning than that, and I mean, so should Wall Street for that matter. I mean, I mean, as someone who's been in the ring, it's it might just be the lighting. Yeah, like, when you've got those lights on you, it eventually starts getting really hot really quickly. Yeah, because there there are also points where I can I could see Jared's just like has to take a moment just to get like good deep breaths in. So I'm just wondering hmm. if it's just like it's just not a good wrestling environment because he's he's like getting red too, and Wall Street's just like pouring sweat. 
Uh, so. All those uh, motorcycle fumes. Oh, yeah, yeah, the fumes. Because they, <laughs> they've kept them running the whole time. They're just, like, revving them. A couple things I want to say before before you finish up, sure. go to the finish of the match. Uh, these are just a couple notes from the commentary. Uh, one thing I like that Eric Bischoff says is he says, all day long, people have been calling the WCW offices wanting to know more about Six and that ladder match. <laughs> I love the idea that I'm going to wait until the day of the show, uh, a Saturday, uh-huh. when no one is going to be working in the office, and I'm going to call and just say, like, hey, can I talk to someone in uh, accounting? I want to hear more about Six and that ladder match. You, <laughs> what are the questions that they have, though? What are the, <laughs> he, he does not go into it more detail. <laughs> what are they They're just about? calling, demanding more. <laughs> right. uh, the other thing he says about the ladder match, it's on this whole run where he's talking about the ladder match. Uh-huh. And they say this again later, uh, but he makes the claim that Scott Hall invented the ladder match. Oh, they, he brings up a few <laughs> times um, during yeah. the match, too, which is like I could also buy that as like a heel thing. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I suppose you're right. That could be just good heel work. It's so hard when a guy is talking for two and a half hours to separate, like what's him being a good heel and what's him being an annoying douchebag in real life. Right. Like I mentioned before, as far as the abdominal stretch and, and wall streets, like, you know, it's like the bane of his existence trying to put one of these on. So they're Jarrett and wall street are kind of like trading them off with the abdominal stretches. And it's just the, most fumbly awkward thing that you can imagine but we reach the point where wall street has the abdominal stretch on jared he has his hand on the ropes um and mongo is finally at ringside so he gets onto the apron and the fans are actually like cheering because they realize this match is going to end soon (laughs) but oh there's another just a, a brief note um Earlier in the match, Wall Street had like a headlock, and they're on the two of them are on the mat, and Wall Street's putting his feet on the ropes, and Nick Patrick's like admonishing him for that. Yeah. As much as I hated Nick Patrick as a heel, that was he was just clearly just going back to like what he his muscle memory of like trying to make sure people are not doing that, because you would think that if it's the NWO guy that he would just allow it. It could be a little bit though of like making a little bit of a show like see i am calling this down the middle i am fair i you know it could be something like that too some of it some of it is muscle memory and it's like as the show goes on nick patrick gets progressively more crooked (laughs) i feel like like this is where he really stops pretending at all in this match because this is the one at one point like he literally like drags i i think Jared had him in like the figure four or something and he drags yes, Wall Street yes. over to the ropes and puts his arms on the ropes, which That's is right. the most crooked thing he's done so far. But yeah, so Mongo ends up just waffling um, Wall Street with the, the Halliburton briefcase, um, in which I feel like Nick Patrick was kind of looking, but then just kind of pretended he didn't see it, which uh, enables uh, Jared to get the pinfall victory. And there is a moment that I did like from this where Mongo's halfway in the ring and he is just visibly threatening Patrick with physical violence if he doesn't yes. make the three count. And Patrick like does a, a pretty quick three count just to be like, the mm-hmm. sooner I do this, the sooner he'll stop threatening me. Um, so that brief moment I, I liked, uh, I thought that played off well. But other than that, this match is just flat out awful. I completely agree. I think it was a terrible, terrible match, especially on a pay-per-view uh, but I agree. My very last note is that uh, 
I liked the ending. I think that if if anyone who isn't in the NWO is going to win on the show, you have to find a creative reason why it why it happens, right? Because yep. Patrick should be there preventing it. So as far as it goes, like this was a creative and funny. Uh, it worked for Mongo's character. It worked for Patrick's character. I really, really did like the finish of the match. And if it had been a three-minute Nitro segment, I would have liked it. But as a nine-minute pay-per-view match, yeah. oh, God, you got to do better, guys, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I did like the ending because that is the best use of Mongo, giving him a briefcase, because you really believe he might accidentally kill someone. <laughs> right. Well, and I do believe that despite being a terrible wrestler, like, he's a scary physical presence, and him is like a bully who's going to, you you are going to, you know, P- Nick Patrick will risk getting chewed out by Eric Bischoff later at the NWO locker room because, like, the other option is to have Mongo tear his head off. <laughs> I completely agree. Mongo is so entertaining. He's <laughs> awful, but in the most entertaining way. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about halfway through, and I got to know... What do you think of the women? Well, we are about to enter the senior division of the search for Miss NWO. How you doing, darling? Division. Well, let me ask you this. Describe for me the part of your anatomy that would best help you win Miss NWO. Probably my feet. Okay, well, feet. a creative answer, not the one I was hoping for. Let's move on, shall we? Her feet. Oh, look at you. You're I like a fine line. Know. You get better with age. How you doing? How you doing? Oh, I had a good line there, won't use it. Folks, as you know, Buff Bagwell is known to have one of the better bodies in the wrestling industry. Tell me, darling, what material would you use to buff his biceps? What? How would I explain this? Well, the miracle ear not turned up, but that's okay. I'm sorry, darling. I think that might disqualify her. Let's forget about it. Rock on, guys! We go back to Jeff Katz, who asked the crowd what they think of the women to absolute silence. It is, you could hear a pin drop. You like, like you, you said with the first segment that they cheered because the fans did not yet know what these segments were, <laughs> and yes. now they're like, "Oh God, again, another one of these." Kat says that we're about to enter the senior division of the contest, and then asks a woman who does not look very old to describe the part of her anatomy her anatomy that would best help her win the Miss NWO. She says her feet, and I pray the COVID takes me before the show is over. <laughs> is this the one where, like, she didn't even hear him at first? Uh, that's the next one. Yeah. Okay. He then walks over to a woman who genuinely does look quite old and asks how she's doing tonight. She just says, I can't hear you. <laughs> what? He repeats the question, and she says, fine. <laughs> He then asks, I what... love each and every one of these women. <laughs> <laughs> he then asks what material she would use to buff Buff Bagwell's biceps, but again, she can't hear him. <laughs> Jeff says her miracle ear must not be turned up, and we go back to Bischoff. Uh, <laughs> that's the end of the segment. Uh, we then go to Scotty Riggs' entrance. He comes out after being called number two and the American male's loser. Oh, yikes. I feel robbed of the American Males theme in this match. Like, I feel like it should have played for Scotty Riggs. Especially since um, in recent weeks, he's now been just clapping by himself. Yes. And I believe that starting tomorrow night on Nitro, they start calling him the American Male as his new, his oh. new nickname. Oh. <laughs> 
this poor guy. He needs a repackage so bad. They they, they want to give him a nickname in which they don't have to change his music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or have him buy new gear or anything. Right. Uh, Buff then comes out wearing a male stripper vest coat thing and an NWO choker that makes him look like such a great jerk-off. He looks like such a prick heel. I love it. It's so good. He's maximum Chippendales dancer at this point. Yes. It's crazy. He's got like a new shorter haircut that really adds into it. Uh, My notes say Buff Bagwell is honestly the most WCW thing that ever existed. (laughs) That's probably true. Like him and Scott Steiner are are both like just (laughs) extremely WCW. Now, as much as I love Buff and, and his new persona, what I don't love is hearing the B-team NWO music a fourth goddamn time. Every match, basically. Ugh. Buff and Nick Patrick struggled to get Buff's jacket over his bicep. I love it. Uh, I really feel like Buff, as a babyface, was kind of a nothing character. And then he turned heel. We didn't see him much for a few weeks. And suddenly, it's like he has sprung forth from the womb of heeldom yeah. in a fully formed adult state. It's... He is all of a sudden completely this character. It's incredible how fast they flip that switch, and he has taken it like a fish to water. Uh, I'm really, really genuinely impressed with Buff Bagwell uh, in terms of his character work here. Yeah. Oh, his character work in this match is great. Yeah, when because it was just a few months ago when they did the, uh, the 30 days to join the NWO or else, and I felt like when they had Marcus Alexander Bagwell join, they mm-hmm. were at least by I don't know if, if just like hanging out with him backstage or anything like that that they were aware like this guy has like this over the top persona that he's capable of and we just right. we just needed the right moment to make him heal and for it to work out because yeah this it, this does not come off as something where it's like hey why don't you give this a a try I feel like this is a, a character that he probably has like shown off before. Uh, away from camera that they're like yes we need to take advantage of this at some point for some reason i think the fact is that like a like all the best characters in wrestling this is who he is this is the real man just with the intensity turned up with the volume turned up to 11 as steve austin always says like this is the real dude just in an extreme version right down to the fact that his career before he was a wrestler was he was a male stripper so it it all lines up with who this guy is as a person. Uh, Riggs starts the match with a sneak attack. They have a they have just a great shot to start where Buff is posing and Riggs gets in the ring behind him. And it's just a really, it's like a horror movie shot where Mike Myers is coming around the corner. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then gets a back body drop and some clotheslines. Buff bails to the outside, complaining that this is not wrestling. And he says if Riggs won't wrestle him, he's going to leave. Eric says that Buff is preparing to go to Japan to represent the NWO on a tour. Uh, I would love to see some of those Buff Bagwell in 97 in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Hopefully there's something on New Japan World that I can see of those. Uh, Through the overhead lipstick cam thing, we see Riggs with a leapfrog and a very good dropkick. His dropkick is so good that Eric stops to put it over, despite the fact that it's not an NWO guy. Uh, my next note just says punch, 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 kick, kick, kick. I believe that takes like several minutes of the match. All right. <laughs> I seem to recall that being a good chunk of the match as well. <laughs> Eventually, Buff tries to float over, but Riggs stops his momentum, and when Buff turns around, Riggs gives him a belly to belly. 
Buff has a tantrum and slaps Riggs a couple times. Uh, now I just have rope running back and forth, yada yada. <laughs> <laughs> I was maybe getting a little bit bored here in the middle of the show. Uh-huh. Riggs sends Buff over the top rope, and there's no disqualification, which angers the announcers. Uh, and I like that even with the NWO and their partisan biased refs, they're also still shitty and inconsistent about whether they're going to call that rule or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is about when they start like randomly blasting just the guy saying "loser" on the on the speakers too. This is really when they start like pressing whatever button that is. Yeah, they take uh the the guy and I forget his name. It's Joe something. Uh, this comes up in the Neil Pruitt podcast about the show. He's like the main sound guy for WCW, and it doesn't seem like this was anything planned. He just he must have got bored during this terrible show. <laughs> Can't blame and him. To entertain himself, he chops off the audio clip of Neil Pruitt saying loser during Scotty Riggs's entrance. And for the rest of the show, whenever he feels it's appropriate and funny, he just plays it over the loudspeaker. And because WCW is such a loosey goosey atmosphere where no one like Bischoff is in charge, but he lets everyone get away with murder. So, like, there's no repercussions to just doing this on the fly. Bischoff thinks it's funny more than anything. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing that would never, ever happen at a WWF show. The sound guy just deciding to entertain himself, like, in a way that the entire audience and TV audience can hear. That would never happen. Right. And it's not like I think it's it's not all that good, but it's not all that bad. It's just crazy to me. That these people can just decide to do that to get a chuckle out of it. And, like, everyone there is just like, who cares, man? Whatever. <laughs> it's nuts. They do not give a shit about so much in this company. Bagwell starts with some kicks and uh, some middle rope choking. We get a Bagwell sucks chant from the crowd. Bischoff tells us that Piper has left WCW. Flair won't be back. Savage's history. And everyone else went to Connecticut. Because horses have glue factories, and guys that can't hack it in WCW have to go somewhere, too. I get it. (laughs) In the best spot of the match, Riggs is out on his feet, and Buff grabs his wrist, and then Weekend at Bernie's him into doing the American Males clap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that that was, like, the best spot of the whole thing. It was very funny. It was just a great mockery of the whole thing. Riggs then telegraphs a back body drop and Buff kicks him and slams him down with a hard powerbomb. A sunset flip from Riggs can't quite take Buff down, so Riggs grabs the tights and gives everyone a gander at Buff's green thong and exposed ass. He eventually takes him over and gets a pin for two. Buff slows down this already boring match with a rear chin lock, but Riggs eventually escapes by getting up into an electric chair drop. He then rolls up Buff for two. An atomic drop by Riggs is followed by an enziguri. He then hits a tornado DDT, and he tries to fire up the crowd, uh, but it's it's honestly sad. He tries to fire him up. He gets almost no reaction. I always feel bad for a guy when that happens. <laughs> he does two more drop kicks. Uh, the crowd still doesn't fire up, even though he has such great drop kicks. They, he's just... Scotty Riggs is not over with the crowd. It's It's painfully obvious watching this match. Buff gets a crossbody for two. Riggs gets a powerbomb for two. Riggs tries a superplex, but Buff fights out of it and hits the move, uh, which is debuting tonight and is called the Bluff Blockbuster. I I think it's soon shortened to the Blockbuster. Uh, It's sort of like a top rope sunset flip in that he's on the top rope and his opponent is standing facing him and he flips over them. 
but instead of uh, like rolling it into a pin, he wraps his arms around their chest. So it almost becomes like a big ending that Big E does in a way. Uh, it's a pretty cool move. I, I like it. If, if you're not familiar with it, probably better than hear me try to describe it is to check it out on YouTube. Uh, so I, I thought the new finisher was kind of cool, but otherwise the match was terrible. Buff wins. Katie, what did you think of the match? Uh, I thought it was not as terrible as some of the previous matches. <laughs> like it wasn't like it wasn't like Ray Trailer versus Hugh Morris bad. It definitely it definitely for a blow off a blow off match for like the American males exploding could have been better. And I, I I agree that Scotty Riggs was having a lot of trouble connecting with the audience. Dave, what do you think? Uh, there was uh, a level of frustration with the ending of this match because what little we had of the feud building up was the idea of them having their respective versions of the perfect plex as their finishers. <laughs> right. Uh, which I don't remember what Buff Bagel was calling his, but I know that Sky Riggs was calling his the Ameriplex and, and how I thought that that was like obviously what they were going to set up for the finish um, as like a, maybe a, a trade-off between the two, but we don't even see either of those finishers being done. Instead, it's a new finisher, which I'm fine with him having a new finisher. I just don't know why they made, like, Riggs taking Bagwell's finisher as a setup if they if it's not remotely even evolved in the match. I assume it goes back to what I had talked about the other day, which is, uh, or in, the, in our last one of our last episodes, which is someone finally realized that Kurt Henning is coming into this country, company. Yeah. And they do not need two guys already doing his finisher. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that was probably something that they figured out after they started like this <laughs> aspect of the feud. Um, so maybe that's that's probably the best thing is just to completely ignore it and then have Bagwell just premiere his new finisher, which I as we go down the road, you'll realize that, that, that when Bagwell does the blockbuster, he actually wraps around the neck and is more like a flying neckbreaker. Um, oh, here it was the chest. It yeah, must just not have been. I, I know which I think it's just like one of the first few times he's he did it and he just didn't do that well because like Riggs was a little bit too close. So I think mm -hmm. that he kind of improvised a bit. But yeah, it's more like the neckbreaker um, when he does it. Gotcha. So when you when we see it more and more often, it'll be he'll improve and kind of like fine tune it. But um, other than that, like this match is far too long. It could have been six, mm -hmm. six and a half minutes and gotten the point across. Another thing that's interesting is it's been months since they broke up, and we've had several pay-per-views. Yeah. It feels like by the time we're finally getting to them having a blow-off match, or at least the, I don't know if, I don't know, I guess, if this is the blow-off, but we're finally getting them in the ring together. Like, any heat that was built up by their breakup is long since diminished. No one cares at this point, I think, anymore about the dissolution of the American males. Yes. The women very awkwardly dance atop the stage as Buff heads up with Nick Patrick. He poses and some weak pyro goes off. Uh, there's pyro throughout the night, but it's always really bad pyro because it's such a small building. Mm -hmm. So you can't do anything big because there'd be just way too much smoke. He dances with one of the biker chicks as Eric makes oblique references to Buff's real life past career as a stripper. Oh, oh my, I feel like I just watched into a Cheech and Chong movie with all this smoke here. Folks! We are almost through with the search for Miss NWO. Now let's find out if contestant number seven has what it takes 
Now, you might not know this, but Vince, the head of the security for the NWO, he's been known to dress up in, you know, a cheap hair piece, a powder blue suit, that sort of thing. I want to know, would you be willing to dress up with Vince? And if so, what would you wear? I can't hear you. What would you wear with Vince? Would you dress up? Sexy lingerie, something like that? Okay, she's open to it, folks. Let's move on. How you doing? It's contestant number eight, isn't it? Oh, my. Now, you know that Scott Norton did not get the nickname Flash for any reason, you know? Now, I want to know, would you help Scott with his flashing problem, or would you just add to that problem? With his flashing? I'd help add to that problem. Oh, ho, ho. I think it's getting a little risque. Eric Bischoff, I'm going to take a cold shower. Back to you. We then go to Jeff Katz, who says with all the smoke in the arena, he feels like he's in a Cheech and Chong movie. The last of those was made 12 years earlier, so a uh, real timely reference there. Uh-huh. He then interviews another contestant, this time right next to the live band, playing the only music that uh, the we, the home audience, will hear them play all night. I, I mentioned there was one time where I noticed they were actually playing, and this was it. So the one time they're actually playing is right when he's trying to interview a woman who's standing next to them and all of their equipment. Kat says that Vince of the NWO has been known to wear cheap hair pieces and powder blue suits. Uh, a a very subtle blink and you miss it shot at Vince McMahon. Yeah, not not so subtle. I don't think that was. Uh, I know it was, <laughs> that was sarcasm. <laughs> He's, he asks her uh, what she would wear if she dressed up with Vince. Uh, she's six feet away from a band playing, so she can't hear a word he says. He then goes, would you wear sexy lingerie? And she just goes, sure. And he <laughs> I love these women so much. In spite of the fact that everything being done is to make fun of these women, they just don't crack. None of them crack yes. ever. <laughs> yes. He then moves on to talk to the next contestant who appears to be a teenager. Yeah. Yep. He asks her if she would help Scott flash Norton with his flashing problem or just make it worse. <laughs> she she says she hopes she would add to that problem. She she gives a good answer. I, I thought she gave a, a funny answer. Out next comes DDP. He has no music but gets a bit of a pop from the crowd. The sound guy keeps pressing that loser sound effect button. And Paige is announced as a guy who had his chance. His opponent tonight will be Scott Norton as a result of Paige giving Norton the diamond cutter this past Tuesday on Clash of the Champions. Mm -hmm. The friggin' B-team music plays again. Uh, and I I was so frustrated at this point that I didn't even write down a clever intro for Dave. I've got nothing. It just goes <laughs> into my notes for the match. Right. But this one is indeed covered by my friend Dave Ampton. Yeah. So right away, there's um, a little bit of like posturing, but it's like it's they're doing a bit of a test of strength with the collar elbow tie up and clearly Norton's winning those. He's winning those. Mm -hmm. He's winning those 11 times out of 10. <laughs> Norton is just such a, both of these guys are great. I just want to go on record and say DDP at this point was literally the coolest man in wrestling. One of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, in W as far as WCW goes, he was one of the coolest. He was the coolest guy in WCW that wasn't in the NWO. And Scott Norton is just, He's a mean-looking dude. Yeah, yeah, I I like Scott Norton a lot. I think he's underutilized by WCW. And, yeah, no one right now, like you said, no one is outside of perhaps the Outsiders. No one is cooler right now than Diamond Dallas Page. And, and I mean, the thing with Norton, the reason he was underused a lot of the time is a lot of the time he was in Japan. 
He was in Japan, and also Eric Bischoff uh, is pretty clear about saying this now. He just never liked Scott Norton. He didn't get him. He didn't see the appeal. Didn't really like him. So yeah, well, he never pushed him. Uh, Bischoff is what we like to call wrong in that case. Right. <laughs> Both of you were mentioning that uh, Diamond House Page came off as like really cool. As if on cue, after these tests of strengths w- did not go his way, uh, DDP grabs his cigar from the ring post and starts puffing it at the cor- around at the corner. And I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Speaking of, Mr. Cool and with it, Ted DiBiase, sees the faces of fear and refers to them as Mutt and Jeff, uh, which were comic strip characters that were popular about 100 years ago. <laughs> Uh, so this match, it's a lot of Norton just completely dominating uh, Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, one of the noteworthy things is the fans uh, all stand up because we see Sting arrive the are- in the arena, uh, which I noted was without any immediate sign of Randy Savage. Um, and that kind of goes back to what we were talking about on the Worldwide Podcast or episode of uh, that Randy Savage thing really seeming like a one-off with him joining up with Sting. Um, Mm -hmm. because like you mentioned, Eric Bischoff keeps suggesting that he is uh, not around. The Savage is not welcome in WCW. And now we have seen Sting for the first time since he left with Savage and there's no Randy Savage. Yes. Talk about, and talk about, I guess this is maybe a spoiler for the rest of the show, but you're listening to us already talk about it. So who cares? Right. Sting is another, like the WCW wrestlers. This is check off Sting that never gets fired. Right. Sting, it's set up that Sting's in the arena. We assume he's probably going to do something cool. Last time we saw him, he was rappelling from the goddamn roof of a stadium. Here, this is it. He comes out, he stands, he watches, and then he heads back to the hotel, presumably. And it makes the crowd mad later. Mm -hmm. Yes, it really does. Yeah. Uh, You were mentioning the idea that Bischoff uh, did not care for Scott Norin. But boy, does he love telling that story about Scott Norton being the um, the bouncer at Grandma B's in Minneapolis. Be- he sure does. Because he brings it up again and now insinuates that uh, people would come to Grandma B's just to see Scott Norton do his thing. He does, but I do want to note he he goes out of his way to repeatedly describe him as a doorman rather than, say, like, security or bouncer. Yeah. And it just makes me picture, like, you know, uh, Katie's off in, in Manhattan. You know, like, that's what I picture. I picture, like, a guy in a little hat and a red jacket letting you into the building, you know? Oh, right. It's just, it yeah. seems very no, weird. I know to... exactly what you mean. <laughs> or, like, the bouncer, the bouncer at the bar that's checking your ID but can't actually really do anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's right. Norton was a tough bouncer at a notoriously tough bar. Uh, but the way Eric's talking about it is both making him sound cool and making him sound lame at the same time somehow. Yeah. Well, knowing Bischoff, it was meant to be condescending. Probably. Once DDP starts mounting a comeback in this match, Buff Bagwell and other members of the B Squad, noticeably the B Squad, show up in the entrance. <laughs> um, Buff Bagwell, I notice right away, has a shirt over his shoulder. And I immediately know the next sequence of events in this. <laughs> I have a note for this. I'm like, here's a match that's good and it's finally going well. And here's the NWO because fuck this match. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I thought that this match was going very well because I feel like neither of these guys were trying to play an angle while wrestling. They were just having a match. And it's just noticeably better than anything we've seen up to this point. Dallas Page. Dallas Page. Hey, 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 hey
contestant for the NWO, baby. It's, uh oh, it's the Buff Man. Well, we I guess. Want you, brother. I guess there was a party I didn't know about. <laughs> we like your style. We like your moves. We just simply like Diamond Dallas Page. No, 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 no. World order. <laughs> Listen, bro, it's cool. It's cool. Scott's already talked to me, baby. It's cool, all right? We want you. We like your move. We like your style. We want you in the NWO, baby, okay? It's cool. Hey, it's cool. Hey, give us some, baby. Put it here. You know, I ain't got no problem with those guys. I'm a little thick-headed. They're a little thick-headed. They got me. I got them. As far as I'm concerned, everything's cool. You always knew I was NWO anyway, Billy. I always said, gotta go. NWO. Let's do it. You put it on, baby! You put it on! Finally. It's cool, hey, it's cool. He's with us. It's cool, he's with us. It's cool, he go, baby. Savage wanted to be there. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. It's absolutely no. unbelievable. No! No! I can't believe, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Please, he didn't do it again. You better run, you better run for your life. Can you believe that? Fool me once. Fool me twice. Damn it, Dallas Page! You don't know what you've done! You don't know what you've done! Loser. He will never! be part of the NWO, as far as I'm concerned. Unbelievable. Some guys will do anything just to get have a just made the decision. Scott Norton wins by count out. The winner, Scott Norton. Very good. This will never happen again. That chumps had his last shot. Uh, so the B squad they surround the ring, and Buff comes into the ring with the shirt. He wants to give DDP another chance to join the group. And I wrote, these guys can't be that stupid, can they? <laughs> Yet, DDP agrees, and he puts on the shirt. And we all know where this is headed. Sure oh, enough, Diamond Dallas, Page is, D Diamond Dallas Page gives Norton the diamond cutter. He decks a few B-Squad guys and hightails it out of the ring. Uh... Buff Bagwell gets onto the turnbuckle and starts shouting at him with the with the microphone about how he's going to regret that decision. While DDP, once he gets a safe distance away, uh, he tears the shirt off, which is what he didn't do that the previous time. And I kind of thought that that would have been a nice touch when he did that to Scott Hall. But now he tears the shirt off. I did notice 
that when Damodas Page went up into the crowd, he stopped in front of what was clearly a planted security guard with the NWO shirt on. Just a big muscle-bound guy that was standing there uh, inconspicuously. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at this point, Nick Patrick uh, goes up to the camera that's at ringside and declares Scott Norton the winner by countout, while Eric Bischoff refers to Domino's page as dumber than a bag of dirt. Well, thank you for clarifying that this match indeed technically had a finish because I was about <laughs> to say the finish of the match is who cares, apparently. Oh, right. <laughs> It was, yeah, it was the exact same thing as the New Orleans angle, just with a smaller crowd and less cool people involved because you don't have Hall and Nash. It was the exact same stuff. They clearly did that segment and really had no idea, like the, the Savage thing, they had no idea what the next steps were going to be, and they are just treading water while they frantically try to think of what the next thing is, it feels like. Yeah, and, and it just... Like I said, it just it, it, it was so obvious from the moment that the B squad guys came out, like how this entire thing was gonna play out. I mean, I, I didn't figure out I didn't think that it was gonna be Norton necessarily that got the diamond cutter, but I was like, someone's gonna get it. Cause there was a point where it's like Big Bubba was a little bit isolated. I was like, Oh, it's gonna be Bubba, but <laughs> Do you have notes on what Bagwell said afterward? Um, on the mic? No, not necessarily. I know he was just kind of like spouting off, but I didn't write anything about. Yeah, the only thing that I have, uh, because it was very funny, is he goes, he he gives a little speech about how Paige is stupid and he shouldn't have done that, blah blah. blah. And then he goes, he'll never be a part of the NWO. And then he poses as if he just won a match. Yeah, I didn't notice that. <laughs> it was really funny. The pose killed me i laughed so hard i i liked it because it seemed like he was trying to make himself feel better by flexing <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh and then he blows a big raspberry which is also very funny oh yeah you, you know yeah like that's are we six like that's the level of i'm so angry i'm gonna blow a raspberry at you uh-huh. it was very funny uh for the second time tonight eric throws it over to Jeff Katz, even though the replays are playing. <laughs> yeah. I remember this, and you hear you hear Katz's voice like in the this is another example of WC's production WCW's production seeming just like low rate B show. Yes. Like you just you just hear Katz's voice over these replays. And it's 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 synced up so bad. Mm. It's also really noticeable because the first time he starts doing it and then he realizes what's about to happen, he's like, oh hold on Jeff, hold on. This second time, he sees it's about to happen, and then he just goes, whatever. And he just it just happens, and he never interrupts. He never says, like, hold on, we're doing the replays. He's just like, whatever. This whole thing is a train wreck. What, what point is there to stopping it now? I, I would say, like, a shrug and a whatever is kind of the story of this whole pay-per-view. Yeah. Uh, it, it seemed like, I, I feel like that a lot of, like the people working on the show during the show realized during the show pretty early that it just was not going to be good and everything, all their plans just were not um, being executed very well. And they're like, well, what, what are we going to do about now? Let's just get, let's just get through this. <laughs> all right, babe master. What do you got for us? Let's get right down to it. I've been waiting all night to ask this one. What is your favorite maneuver, and will you please show me how to apply it? I would show you, but there's children watching. I'm in room 802. We'll talk later. Okay. How you doing? Good. 
My question for you is simple. You see, Masa Chono, the first international member of the New World Order, he kind of comes from a male-dominated society. I want to know what would you as Miss NWO do to make his stay in America a little bit more familiar, to a little more comfortable? Anything you want, as long as I have some chopsticks. Oh, my! Folks, we will be back later to find out who is Miss NWO. Let's go back to the ring for some more sold-out action. Well, I want to apologize young ladies out here. It was real important. We got a little look at that incriminating evidence that Diamond Dallas Page decided to leave us with. Katz asks a woman uh, if she could show him her favorite move, and she says she can't because there are children watching. That's actually pretty good. Yeah. That was that was actually a pretty good one. Yeah. Uh, the second woman gets asked what she would do to keep Chono to stay in America she says anything he wants as long as she can get some chopsticks, which is both racist and confusing. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I know what you're saying is very racist, but I also do not understand what you are saying. It's like racism <laughs> for the point of racism. It's racism. I just don't I just don't know how it is. <laughs> it doesn't have actual context. She just needed they just needed to be racist somehow. <laughs> The Steiners come out to a mixed reaction and some more loser sound clips played. They then get called dog-faced Michigan mutts by the NWO voice and head to the ring. Finally, we get to hear a new song as the NWO theme proper plays, and finally some cool members of the NWO, the Outsiders, make their way to the ring. To start the match, Scott Steiner and Scott Hall circle then lock up. Uh, for simplicity's sake, I will refer to Scott Hall as Hall pretty much always throughout the match so that it's not confusing which Scott I'm talking about. Uh, Steiner powers Hall into the corner and then Patrick forces a break at which point Hall tosses his toothpick at Scott Steiner. Another lockup and now Hall works a wrist lock around along with some disrespectful slaps to the back of the head. Steiner reverses the wrist lock and does a fireman's carry takeover. Hall gets a couple knees to the gut and then an abdominal stretch. Steiner escapes a applies an abdominal stretch of his own, turning it into a pump handle slam. Scott executes an overhead belly-to-belly -belly suplex that brings in Nash, which brings in Rick, and it's a fracas. Nash is DDT'd right away by Rick, and the Outsiders leave the ring to allow the Steiners to do their barking and posing. After that, Rick and Hall end up the legal men, and they exchange strikes. Rick gets a scoop slam and a standing elbow drop. Steiner then tries coming off the second rope for a crossbody, but Hall catches him for the fallaway slam. That gets a two count, and Rick tags in Scott. Hall manages to catch Scott Steiner with a choke slam. Uh, he does that really unique choke slam where it kind of is like he's setting up for a rock bottom, but then it's a choke slam. Uh, it's just like a notable move of his that I've always I've always really enjoyed his unique choke slam. Mm -hmm. He then tags in Nash, and the big man comes in, isolates Steiner in a corner, and hits some elbows. Harlem Heat and Sherry are shown standing in the crowd, watching intently, as Steiner stops Nash's momentum with a big boot and a spinning belly-to-belly -belly for a long two-count by Nick Patrick. Scott Steiner tags in Rick, and he and Nash exchange punches. Rick hits the third Steiner belly-to-belly -belly suplex of the match, but another, slow pat but another slow Patrick count costs him the pin. Rick gives Nash a power slam, but Hall nails him from the apron, and that allows Nash to take Rick to the floor with a big boot. Outside the ring, Hall clotheslines Rick and rolls him back in, but even with his feet on the ropes, a pin by Nash only gets a two. 
We then enter a long stretch of the match. Like, what I just described takes three minutes, but now six minutes are encompassed in this next paragraph. The Outsiders start beating on Rick, doing the babyface in peril thing. They double-team him. They go to Scott to come in the ring. That way Patrick has an excuse to be distracted so they can double-team him some more. Uh, it's a kind of a weird way to set up the match because the entire build for this match was whether or not Scott Steiner is still injured. And yet here the bulk of this match is Rick Steiner playing the babyface in peril. Mm -hmm. I, I don't quite get why they did it that way. Other than perhaps Scott Steiner's injuries still are bothering him and they didn't want him to be in the ring that long. I, I'm not sure. If, if they were still bothering him, it doesn't show because whenever he's in the ring, he's like, this is Scott Steiner when all of his joints still work. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, he, you're right. If, if he is hurting, he does not show it at all. Because he pulls off some, like, really incredible stuff in this match in between all the weird booking. <laughs> Eventually, Scott Hall chokes Rick on the ropes and Scott Steiner hops down to the floor to come over there and teach him a lesson. So he is walking on the floor around the ring and on the way, Nick Patrick tries to stop him and Scott does something. Uh, the camera misses it. So I don't know exactly what happened, but the next time we cut to a wide shot, Nick Patrick isn't in the ring anymore. So I think what happened is that Hall pulled Patrick out of the ring, down to the floor, and then pushed him to the ground. That's as best as I can guess. I don't know. He must have got hit somehow. The way I put it is all referees are like characters with one hit point. So any sort of like, <laughs> any sort of hit just immediately knocks oh, a referee out. Man. I like that. I never heard. I never heard it like that. But that, that's a good description. And it just takes a long time for him to to get back to hundred percent health. Yeah. Even in uh, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but even in the next match, like for half of the match, he he's like selling that he's not quite there, and it's really good refing. It's it's subtle and it doesn't show as much because he's so into the heel stuff. Mm. But he's selling it properly for a bit afterwards. Like he has to get up and ref again because that's how they book the show. Mm -hmm. But he makes sure to make. It look in the next match like he's not he's really not there after dispensing with patrick steiner makes his way over to hall and punches him and then yells fuck you at his prone body <laughs> <laughs> and then he looks at some fan and yells the same thing at the fan and that guy must have crapped his pants <laughs> right. having an angry scott steiner yelling the f word at you <laughs> i can't I, my heart would stop in place i can't imagine uh, a hint of the scott steiner that was to come <laughs> Bischoff makes the NWO look very cool and very edgy by saying you can't act like that on an NWO pay-per-view and saying he will take some serious disciplinary action against Scott. Right. He goes on and on about it, saying, hey, you could be frustrated, but you must maintain some level of professional decorum. Right. Like, Gosh darn it, the NWO are edgy as heck, you guys. It all amounts to nothing, though, as Rick ends up back in the ring with Nash picking over his corpse. Nash gloats and spits at Scott. Scott tries to enter the ring again, distracting Patrick, and Rick takes advantage with a low blow on Nash. Nash tags in Hall, but Rick finally makes the hot tag to Scott Steiner, who runs wild with clotheslines and a butterfly suplex on Hall and a side suplex on Nash. They set up Hall for the bulldog, but Nash pushes Hall off of Scott Steiner's shoulders, and Hall falls and nails Scott Steiner in the back, which also cripples Nick Patrick, who sells it by stumbling in one direction, then moving in the other direction, then slowly grabbing the top rope and gently rolling himself over the middle rope in a direction that was <laughs> other than where his momentum was taking him. Mm. 
it's it's like a unintentional comedy sell job for the ages. I was laughing so hard. Uh, I was down here watching it on my computer, and I turned my computer off and went upstairs and watched it on the iPad instead, because I that's what I use to make gifts. I have a program on the iPad, and I was like, I made my wife look. I made her watch it five times. Later in the match, uh, after the match, there's in the replays. There's a second angle that shows a lot more of Patrick. It's even funnier. Uh, it's it's just hilarious. Yeah, this is when he. Now I'm remembering. This is when he gets fully knocked out. Like he gets taken out in earlier in the match, and this is when he just gets knocked out. Yes, like, correct. Completely, and and does and doesn't come back for the rest of the match. Yes. No, that was that was some of the. Look, it, regardless of if you like heel officiating or not, like it's a personal preference, I get it. If there is a ref that was the best heel referee of all time, it was Nick Patrick because he does it how it should be done, and that selling is part of like part of why. Just his comical like Looney Tunes <laughs> selling of getting knocked out. Yeah, I'll say uh, in general, I was not a big fan of Nick Patrick back as a babyface ref, but I do agree. That even though maybe philosophically I don't like heel ref stuff, I do think no one has done heel ref better than Nick Patrick has throughout wrestling history. I, I do think as as far as that particular set of skills goes, he's he's top of the heap for sure. Oh, that was the role he was made to play right there. As the if an NWO heel ref, that was what he was meant to do. It takes his mannerisms that when he was a a normal straight referee, I always found his mannerisms to be kind of lazy and lackadaisical. But as a heel, it makes sense. the The laziness feels motivated, and I think that it covers up for some of the stuff I didn't like. I think you're absolutely dead on. I think he was born to be a heel ref. No, the douchebag mustache helps too. <laughs> Uh, so where we left, Scott is dazed on the second rope. Patrick is out of the ring. Scott Hall is in the ring. So he grabs Scott for the outsider's edge because Scott is already standing on the second rope. He's, he's like right in the perfect position for it. Hall hits the outsider's edge and then pins Scott Steiner, but Nick Patrick is out cold on the floor. Rick gets rid of Nash by whipping him into the guardrail and then heads up to the top rope. Hall gives up on the pin and stands in the ring confused as to what's happening allowing Rick to bulldog him from behind from the top rope. Rick then drags Scott Steiner on top of Scott Hall and goes to fetch Patrick, but Randy Anderson hops the rail and says he'll count the pin, so Rick shoves Patrick back to the ground, and Anderson slides in the ring, counting the one, two, three. The crowd pops, but also throws trash. They're, uh, they're of two minds about right. this one. Right, because of all the people that they didn't want to see in the NWO win, they actually really <laughs> love Hall and Nash. That's true. It's, a, it's, it's such a bizarrely booked show, um, which I think we'll talk about a little more when, once we get to the ending. But yeah, the fact that the cool members of the NWO lose on the NWO show is a truly baffling decision. DiBiase and Bischoff are furious and insist that this decision will be reversed as Anderson is not a licensed referee for this event. The Steiners leave with Anderson and the belts, and Eric promises to fire Randy Anderson by tomorrow morning. Uh, before we talk about what we thought of the match, I just want to share that uh, Kevin Nash, on losing the tag belts, uh, in that shoot interview that I mentioned before where he talks about 97 exclusively, he says he thought the NWO losing so many matches on their show was stupid, uh, but that he and Hall just kind of saw how everything was shaping up and they knew this was going to be a terrible show. And they figured that the smart play for them politically would be to just be quiet and let this fail so that later they could give their ideas. And if anyone had resistance to their ideas, they could say, look, we did it your way and it sucked and everyone hated it. Sure. 
So their their plan was essentially to let this fail, and I think that's why we don't see them a lot tonight. They they're in this match. They come out at one moment later, uh, but they are not all over the show like you would expect the outsiders to be on an NWO themed pay per view. Mm-hmm. He says that they do. They didn't have any qualms about losing to the Steiners specifically, though, since the Steiners were legit tough guys. Like anyone should not be embarrassed to lose to the Steiner brothers. Yeah. Uh, so that makes sense. But uh, so those are Kevin Nash's thoughts on the booking, anyway. As for the match itself, I thought this uh, was among the better matches on the show. I didn't think it was great or anything, but the wrestling was all was all fine. Um, it made sense. The big moves were impressive, mm. uh, as Katie said earlier. Scott Steiner hits a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Dave, what did you think of the match here? Yeah, I I thought it was fine. I mean, I think it's what you would expect from these two teams um, wrestling against each other. Nothing noteworthy, nothing really. It's like it isn't one of those matches where once it was over, I started immediately kind of forgetting about it. Um, The only thing I wanted to note was when it came to Randy Anderson coming in because right when he shows up um, in the crowd, he has what I'm going to refer to as Chekhov's turtleneck sweater because Chekhov's turtleneck sweater. Because I was like, whoa, that's a really big sweater. It's almost like you can hide a referee shirt underneath it. And I thought without having seen the show before that he was going to remove it and you could see the referees. Oh, and it'd be like, oh, that would have been good. It would have made more sense. Like it, it would be a little bit a lot clearer to the fans like that. The guy coming in is a referee because not every fan's going to know that it's not going to recognize him out of a referee uniform. And I just thought like what he was wearing was a easy way to hide it underneath it. But then when he didn't take it off, I was like, Oh, well that was kind of a missed opportunity. I completely agree. It does feel, it feels way too early to make the outsiders lose their tag belts, especially since it's not even, it's not a very hot feud or anything they're having with the Steiners it, that the match with the Steiners felt kind of thrown together over the last couple of weeks. So mm. it didn't really feel like a big triumphant victory for WCW or anything like that. Especially since you get this immediate impression that this is going to get reversed right away anyway. It's a very it's a very hollow kind of cheap pop sort of victory that the Steiners get, but I mean yeah, I thought the match itself was fine and that yeah, Scott Steiner looked great. And maybe just what you're saying, maybe they were just trying to be a bit cautious with him and not having to get thrown around or potentially get hurt right away. Katie, what did you think of the match? Uh, I think it was a good match. I think it was better than anything we'd seen on the show up to this point. I do think there's maybe one match on the show that's coming up that's better, but um, there's one ma- It's up to this point, it, it's probably the best they had done. I do agree, like, Bischoff basically ranting on commentary about, like, about how he's going to fire Randy Anderson and how he's going to reverse it telegraphs what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he basically kind of gives gives the storyline away right there. And I think the fans even feel it, too. Like, it, it doesn't get a big pop. And the fans didn't want to see Kevin and Hall and like, yeah, excuse me, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Right, was, absolutely. They... they, they they, they, that wasn't the NWO team that they wanted to see lose. I completely agree. The crowd is is split on how to feel about that one, um, and it, it doesn't get maybe the moment it could have. I do like, again, going back to like the Mongo Halliburton finish, I do like the finish. I think it's another clever way of setting up how a team could win, yep. um, and I don't mind if they want to come back and reverse it later. What I don't like is is that presumably I paid twenty seven ninety five to watch this pay-per-view. 
it sucks. It's terrible. And then when I finally get to, like, a big match where something happens, the announcers spend the rest of the night telling me that it's not going to count, that the finish that just happened, I can forget about it. None of it actually mattered. Like, that's that's just a frustrating thing as a paying viewer uh, to be told. Yeah, I mean, Eric could have just said, like, oh, we're going to do something about this, something a little bit yeah. more vague, and then just moved on and just had had the victory be savored on this pay-per-view and then you can turn around and do the reversal on Nitro without having to be bringing it up on the pay-per-view. So the pay-per-view in itself can be like an exciting moment that you can you can savor it for the rest of the night. But no, just the way that he... I mean, they've barely done the three count before Eric Bischoff is saying that it's not going to count, you know? Yes. And so it, it, just, it just sucks away any sort of excitement for a title change that you get out of it. Eddie Guerrero comes out to what is, uh, so far, the biggest audible cheers of the night. The announcer calls him a Mexican jumping bean uh-huh. and a loser a few times. Uh, that was pretty racist. That was, yeah. yeah, it was not my favorite. And and I think both uh, Bishop and DiBiase try to make a joke about, like, can we really say that? In which it's like, they're, they're probably thinking, like, yeah, that was probably a bad idea now that you... That's one of those things... <laughs> oh, I doubt it. I Those guys probably loved no, it. Right. I, I, I doubt they were having second thoughts. I don't want to <laughs> give them the credit. I don't want to give them the credit for that at fair all. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> then out comes six <laughs> to the B-team music. Yeah. I had that in my notes in all caps, and then so I laughed really hard yesterday because, Dave, you were watching the show, and you texted me when it happened because you were so surprised. Right. I was like, I know. I can't believe it. Oh, oh he knows, he's, he has been put in his place now. <laughs> As he comes out and poses on a ladder, Eric makes the dubious claim that in high school, the Steiners would try to change the dates of their weigh-ins for their wrestling matches. Yeah. It's. It was around this time that I realized I was having difficulty not tuning him out because I try not to tune him out so I can write about the bad stuff he says for our podcast. Yeah. But I was I was having to like force myself to listen to him and DiBiase because I wanted to stop so bad. Mm-hmm. This is what I said last time where I had no notes, but my notes actually read this time. I'm getting beat down by this pay-per-view and I have no clever segue to say that Dave is calling this match. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, uh, <laughs> I thought your joke was going to come from this because when Six comes out, the NWO voice refers to him as the ultimate swinger. Oh, I missed oh. that. Oh. I missed okay. that too. And I was. A lot of that voice is like muffled and hard yeah, to make out. But he, he mm. refers to Six as the ultimate swinger. And I wrote, I don't want to know anything more about that. I don't know what that could mean. I mean, I know. Certainly, I know what a swinger yeah. is, but I don't know in what way that's supposed to apply to Six. Right. I mean, he's not like married or anything i mean i don't know that he's got a partner maybe they're out enjoying a polyamorous lifestyle that's fine but like that's never been a part of his character or anything right. it's so that's weird. not anything his partner was awesome. all of those biker women <laughs> and um another note about six is like whatever perm haircut that he has is just so <laughs> like it's on point tonight it's like i'm so distracted by that hair of his it's it's so mm. fabulous it's so it's so hard to not want to look at that all day it is pretty good hair also i made a note that scene six wearing the united states championship fills me with dread <laughs> and and i know that 
obviously Eddie Guerrero wasn't like the tallest wrestler in the world. I know that he was well under six feet tall, but it was just jarring to see that like six is like looming over him uh, at almost all times. And, and it seems like um, six kind of makes an effort to ke- give himself like a lower posture for a lot of the match to kind of put himself mm. more at Eddie Guerrero's level. Um, mm-hmm. but it's just really weird. Like six looks like a monster in comparison to Eddie Guerrero, which I, I would not have expected, uh, going into this match. Sure. Uh, but Eddie Guerrero attacks six before the bell. So that's a, that was unexpected. <laughs> yeah. That's the second time that happened. Cause Riggs did the same to buff. Oh, oh, that's right. That's right. With Riggs and Buff, it made sense, though, because it was the blow-up match to their feud, so to speak. So mm. a jump start would make more sense in that match. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, like, Eddie Guerrero's also been frustrated with Six coming out at, like, every Nitro on the ladder with his championship. So maybe he was, like, f- just really raring to get his hands on him. But it's, like, it surprised me that he tacked him before the bell, which makes sense of uh, why Six was not ready for it either, because I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> uh, but Six quickly retaliates with kicks and some of those really neat karate chops of his. Six fails to catch Eddie for a flying head scissors takedown, uh, so they essentially just go off the ropes and give it another try, and it succeeds, and Eddie follows that up with a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker. I know it's hard, Uh and and it's I, I I try not to do this much quarterbacking from my you know armchair quarterbacking because uh, I'm not a wrestler. But it seems like if you botch a spot, the like the one thing you shouldn't do is just do it again to really call attention to the fact that this is what you were just trying to do. Yeah. Like do literally anything else for twenty seconds <laughs> and then go back to the thing. I don't care what the thing is, just any other thing than what you had just tried, right. and then come back to it. I I don't know. It just seems. It seems like it's surprising to me how often they just go and do the thing they tried. Mm. You know, it's just it depends on the spot. I mean, it depends on how important the spot is to the match. Sure. It depends on what what was coming after the spot. It it depends on the wrestler, really. Mm-hmm. I, I think th- I think in this case it wasn't too much of a distraction for the match from the match. I think they were able to. The important thing is you just have to keep going. Mm-hmm. The the important thing is not to just like blank and be like, oh shit, oh right. shit, I I I fucked up. Right. Then and, and they just kept going. They both knew that they had to keep going. It happens. Every, everyone botches at some point. For and, sure. So after the tilt world backbreaker, Six slides out of the ring, and Eddie follows up with his uh, just fantastic plancha from the top, in which he has little margin for error due to the motorcycles at ringside. Like, there's a very there's a very little uh, room for him to make a mistake or anything like that. Um, also, there seems to be very little in the way of padding at ringside, as both men land. Oh, there's nothing. Yeah, they land, and there's like an audible thump for both of them. And I'm mm. like, oh, God, it's going to be... That's how this match is going to be going. I think that's around the time Eric says that somewhere Hector Guerrero is watching and saying, I Chihuahua. Oh my God, Bischoff, stop. Which is why, <laughs> that's why I didn't want to give him the credit oh. for thinking the, the jumping bean went gotcha. too far. Yeah, I... Because he's got his own That's thing. just as yeah, far. I, I missed that one, so. Back in the ring, Eddie attempts a Huracurana from the top, but Six pushes him off, then hits him with a flying backheel kick. At this point, there's a lot of talk from Eric Bischoff about Six's history with concussions, uh, which I'm... It's so weird. I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to accomplish by emphasizing that. He also says 
Eric like to get over that he knows about concussions. He goes, I've had a few of them in my career as a TV announcer. <laughs> which, like, which, what, what, I don't, what does that mean? <laughs> he says that like one thing naturally leads to the other. <laughs> okay, Eric. <laughs> Both men are slow to the feet and that's going to be also a story of this match. I think both men are very visibly beaten down quickly and and mm-hmm. six especially there's a lot of moments where he is just slow to get back up and Nick Patrick like uh taking advantage of being the heel is actually he helps him up in uh, in more one occasion. So they're they're slow to the feet where and six backs Eddie into the corner. Uh, then he comes from the opposite corner to hit uh, what is an early version of his Bronco Buster. Uh, for now, he's a bit more conservative in the amount of riding he does on Eddie's chest. Uh, Eddie recovers, drop kicking six out of the ring as Bischoff complains about fake karate practitioners. <laughs> is my note here. <laughs> he's just he's just more whining about like uh, about guys that uh, they go to a couple of practices and suddenly they're experts. And it's just unprovoked, and DiBiase is just silent. He has nothing to add to it. Yeah, it's just weird. He also for I just because he's shooting off at the mouth and he doesn't think about the effect of what he's saying. He specifically mentions Glacier oh. as a guy who has bogus and fake karate, Yikes. which is way to just kill the character. A, it kills the character, and B, it's not true. Ray Lloyd mm, has yes. a legitimate award-winning karate background so it's just it's stupid in a variety of ways i know he's trying to get to the point where he's like uh but six is not one of those guys but for most of it when six is doing like the karate hand stuff while bishop's complaining about fake karate guys it seems like Mm -hmm. he's he's insinuating that six is a fraud Mm. At least that's how it comes off. I know eventually he... I think that's unintentional because I, yeah. I know from just comments he's made on his podcast and stuff, like he, he does think Six is a good... Uh, has like legitimate karate credentials, which if you know Eric Bischoff, you know that matters to him a lot. Yeah. Being a legitimate karate No, guy. no, I don't, I, th- I don't think this was intentional. It's just that he takes such a long time to eventually mm. say like Six is not one of them. But if you miss that comment, there's like these minutes on end where it seems like he's just ripping on six. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's also probably Bischoff gets more grading as time goes on. So by this point, we're all just tired of him and everything he says Mm. is is going to be irritating at this point regardless. (laughs) Because it's just at this point, the show's been going over two hours and it's just Bischoff has been dumping on everything. And he's basically done all all the talking because you can tell that his voice is getting a little rough too yes this is when mm-hmm. his voice starts to yeah, crack yeah. absolutely um so okay so six is out of the ring eddie attempts to suplex him back in uh but it is reversed and both men go tumbling to the unpadded floor with six's reverse suplex and this is another one of the cases where patrick basically helps six back to his feet patrick is doing a good job uh of like making sure that the ladder is, you know, steady so the guys can climb without making it too obvious that he's doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Patrick was like a, a good ladder match referee here. Oh, he's doing his exactly what his job is. Besides making the match appear like a shoot, part of the referee's job is to make every sure everything's safe 
and he's making sure everything's safe here. Like he's helping six up when he- six needs help. He's making sure the ladder's not in the wrong place. Mm. He's doing an incredible job here. Like I said, six is noticeably slow to get up, but that doesn't stop him from uh, getting back into the ring, uh, streaking across and hitting uh, Eddie on the floor with a senton, which the camera basically misses everything up because they go to like the big arena shot and you almost don't see the senton. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I noticed that what you can see of it, it looks great, yeah. too. It's a great scent on and they basically just half miss mm-hmm. it. And so this is the point in which uh, Six is the first one to actually go to the top of the ramp and grab a ladder. So up to this point, we've not had the ladder yet, um, which he uses it to sandwich uh, Eddie uh, between the ladder and the ring apron. Um, this is also he runs down the ramp and you can hear him bang off of the motorcycles too with the ladder. <laughs> There's very little room for them to be doing a ladder match here. So I don't know why they didn't think like they might get, kind of be an obstacle if they're trying to do this ladder work outside of the ring, but they got to work with what they got back in the ring. And now Eddie has a ladder and he strikes six with it while the crowd is chanting his name, which I always appreciate when the fans are behind Eddie Guerrero. Oh, the fans actually got into this match. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is a credit to them because they've been given plenty of reason to tune out (laughs) by this point. Oh, no, Eddie and Six are both, like, actually, in spite of this pay-per-view, managing to put on Mm -hmm. a good match. Like, there's there's little flaws in there, but as a whole, they're managing to put... They managed to wake the crowd up, which is the most important thing. I would concur. Uh, Eddie sets the ladder up in the corner, but his Irish whoop of Six is reversed, and he he gets thrown chest-first into the ladder, sending both wrestlers and the ladder to the mat. Six gets to his feet, and he stops the ladder as it lays on Eddie's chest, and there's a weird moment where where um, Bischoff is suggesting that Six is trying to hit his chest, but is missing and keeps stomping the ladder instead of his chest. And it's just like trying to make excuses for Six mm-hmm. making that mistake. When mm. I think like, no, no, he's stomping the ladder for, so the ladder hits his chest. Like it makes mm. sense, but Eric Bischoff has a totally different concept of what he should be doing. And it just like he did, it's another thing where he rambles on, and DiBiase is just not present to do anything about it. Uh, Six then sets the ladder up near a corner while Guerrero writhes in pain. He suplexes Guerrero and starts to climb the ladder, but Eddie jumps to his feet and climbs the other side. Six then punches Eddie directly in the dick before sending him to the mat. This interruption for some reason makes Six rethink his plan as he gets out the ladder, then closes it, and then leans it against the corner. He climbs the turnbuckle, but Eddie dropkicks the ladder, which causes Six to get crotched on the turnbuckle. Uh, Eddie then follows up with a superplex, then sets the ladder up in the middle of the ring. Uh, Six climbs the opposite side, and then he dropkicks Eddie from the top of the ladder. It's amazing, because Six is Mm -hmm. sacrificing his body to fall all the way from the top of the ladder to do a dropkick. Um, and yeah. it's probably the best moment of the match, which Eric Bischoff, still in his throes of his martial arts whining, is insisting that the drop kick is actually an inverted jump sidekick. Yeah, yeah. It's more Eric wanting to put over his own knowledge of karate more than the match. Right, which is like earlier on with the Inseguri, maybe I could see some terminology getting mixed up, but it was a drop kick. It's a very basic mm-hmm. wrestling move <laughs> that has a definite name to it. 
once both these men recover, we have another round of both men climbing the ladder, where Six manages to knock Eddie off with a series of right hands. Eddie lands on his feet, and he does the uh, the thing where he stumbles backwards into the ladder, which causes Six to land throat first on the top rope. Uh, again, both men, uh, once the ladder is set up again, they climb the ladder, only this time they both get their hands on the United States Championship, pulling it off of the hook at the same time. Eddie rests the belt away and hits Six with it, which uh, sends both Six and the title down to the mat. Um, there's there's a brief moment where Nick Patrick, I think, improvising gestures like he's going to grab the title. Um, so Eddie quickly drops to the mat and he grabs the belt from the ground with the win. Uh, then he he dives into the crowd and over to where the WSW wrestlers are to celebrate with them. So I thought this was a good match. Um, I think you could judge it one of two ways. You could look at it as a ladder match, and in which case there's been 20 years of escalation in terms of what we see and expect from a ladder match and innovations and craziness. Mm -hmm. This match was not without craziness and innovation, but it was kind of somewhere between like a modern ladder match and the early ladder matches on a national scale that we got from Scott Hall and and uh, Shawn Michaels. Yeah. I don't think it's on the level of those matches, but I thought it was a, a it was basically a good match that happened to involve a couple ladder spots is sort of a way to look mm -hmm. at it. Um, rather than looking at it as like a modern ladder match was almost exclusively focused around crazy ladder spots. Uh, so I thought this was a good match. It is not one I would tell people to go out of their way to watch necessarily. Um, but it was a it was a good and memorable match on a show that badly needed something uh, to entertain me. So so overall, I like this match. Katie, what do you think? My thoughts, I completely agree. Like, this was a bright spot in a pay-per-view that didn't have a lot of real bright spots. Like, it, they, like I said, the main thing is you can hear the crowd wake up. The crowd had checked out by this point, and they woke up for this match. And uh, part of it's just a testament to how good Eddie Guerrero was, honestly. Like, this is Eddie Guerrero before injuries, before he had to be out for a bit, before he realized that WCW was never going to use use him to his full capabilities. Mm -hmm. So this is, like, motivated young Eddie Guerrero. Dave, what did you think of this uh, the match? I, I thought it was great. Uh, I'm going I'm gonna lightly disagree with Tim as far as this being a match that happened to have a ladder in it. To me, it's a legitimate ladder match. There's plenty of ladder mat ladder spots and things like that. It's just a little bit different from more modern ladder matches in which it's like there are moments of setup moves and setting up for ladder spots in which the, I feel like this is more of a... To me, uh, this is going to be my old curmudgeon like uh, moment here, but back in my day when we had ladder matches, it was used more naturally <laughs> instead of setting up spots. Mm -hmm. But uh, I and I was saying this to uh, Tim before we started recording, I because I was trying to do a little bit more uh, research about um, how people perceive this match at the time, because like you were saying, as far as we've had so many, we've had decades of ladder matches of which everything's all about up the upping the ante, and how some of these the earlier ones seem a little bit more quaint in comparison. Um, so I wanted to get a better idea of how people thought about the match at the time. And like for a point of reference, Dave Meltzer gave this four out of five stars, which I think is a, a fairly high ranking considering it's a match on the sold out pay-per-view. 
so it's yeah, it definitely absolutely. comes as like a bright spot. I mean, I thought I thought Eddie was was great, but I thought the uh, that six was exceptional in this match. You could tell he is trying his hardest to go all out, especially considering you can you can see that like early on that his bigger spots are really hurting him and slowing him down, but he's just trying to pull himself up and deliver another great spot. And again, like that drop kick off the top of the ladder is pretty crazy. It, it's deserving to be on a better pay-per-view than this. I mean, again, it is kind of like this weird thing where the NWO is losing like these prominent matches, which I don't, th- mm-hmm. I just don't think that should have been the way that this was booked, especially if they were considering doing other NWO pay-per-views like this. But yeah, I mean, considering that there was a little bit of a buildup and everything like that, I I like that Eddie won and he finally like has possession of his championship. Even if that doesn't necessarily mean that this feud's over yet, I thought it was a good way to end. I like Eddie should win this match. Basically, is what I'm trying to get. It's just it's, the reason it's worth reiterating so much is because of the rest of the pay per view. Yes, Eddie tells Eric to kiss his ass via mime. <laughs> Eric claims that this one will also be reversed and a new solid gold belt will be made for six. I just I don't think that one actually happens. <laughs> I I wish I wish that NWO just started manufacturing their own titles. That would have been solid gold belts. Yeah. Just the idea of it. I'm like I I wish I would have seen what they would have come up with with that. We then go to Jeff Katz who has all the Miss NWO contestants lined up to announce the winner. Their names are announced, and they parade around. They He, like, announces one by one their names. They come and dance by him. He makes fun of them some more. Uh, graphics run with their alleged height measurements, eye color, occupation, hobbies, quotes. I'm assuming, other than, like, their names, that's all made up. Like, one woman's quote is, I find men in bowling shirts sexy or something. Who knows? Uh, it is the Midwest. It, I mean, it's possible. It's just, if someone said, what's your favorite quote, I don't think you'd say, men with bowling shirts turn me on. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I tried really hard to find any of these women online to see if I could ask them about their experience. I, I did the same online sleuthing that I uh, did to find Lynn Scribbins uh, mentioned in the... Oh, that I still haven't read Lynn Scribbins' messages on the air, have I? I don't think so. I'll save that for a few... T- who is Lynn Scribbins? I am not aware of who this is. All right. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go through Lynn Scribbins since this is a good reveal, and I teased it on Twitter recently. Uh, on Clash of the Champions that was held this past Tuesday, uh, what's his face? Lee Marshall did his road report, and he said that he was watching the show... Oh, no, it was two weeks. It was on Nitro when he was hyping Clash of the Champions. He said that he was in Iowa watching Nitro at the house of a woman named Lynn Scribbins of Clear Lake, Iowa. And because he's normally making inside jokes with his road reports, I decided to Google the name to see who that is, to see like what the joke was. And I found it's just a real woman who lives in uh, this town called Clear Lake, Iowa. And I found her on Facebook and I sent her a message. And uh, I said, you know, when we recorded the episode, she hadn't answered. But then on Thursday... In the afternoon, she got back to me, uh, and she was actually really tickled, I think, that I had e- messaged her to ask about it. So I'll just read her read her reply here. She said, "This is I sa- so basically my message said, do you have any idea why Lee Marshall would have dropped your name on this Clash of the Champion, or Nitro from 97? She says, hi, this is funny. My boys and their friends were really into pro wrestling. 
one of their friends, Sonny Ono of Mason City, worked for one of the wrestling organizations at the time. I believe the next show was going to be in Des Moines. She's talking about Cedar Rapids, but she's just mistaking that it was in Des Moines. Uh, she says that her and her family were going to the show, and she was shocked to find out later that Sonny Ono mentioned it and that many people heard him. She asked Sonny about it, and he said that he gave them her name as a way of uh, just, you know, he, he liked her. It was his friend's mom, and he just thought it would be funny. Mm. Uh, she says, I was on the school board at the time, and I took some serious ribbing about being a big fan of wrestling. Uh. They Thanks for the message. Take care. And then I love she added this, P.S., I have a photo with Diamond Dallas Page and happened to hear him on the radio today doing an ad. I love the old wrestling ties. Winky emoji. <laughs> That's a great response. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Lynn Scribbins is a national treasure. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was really excited to get that, get that reply. Um, so I was trying something similar. I was trying to find any of the women from the Miss NWO uh, contest. But the fact that I don't think Jeff Katz is always pronouncing their names correctly... Uh, and the fact that just with the audio of the show, it was hard to get what their names were. The closed captioning was not much help. Mm. Uh, I found one woman with one of the names, and it's a pretty unique name, uh, who does live in Iowa. And I did send her a Facebook message. I have not heard back. Of course, if I if I do ever have a conversation with her, I'll, I'll update that in a future episode. Fantastic. Unfortunately, the choice is not mine. No, the choice belongs to the king. Eric Bischoff, come on down. I love you. Eric Bischoff, ladies and gentlemen. Winner, Eric. First of all, we're going to pick a winner. Because that's what we do here in the NWO, is pick winners. I love you guys. Man. Thank you very much. Thank you. But yeah, we pick winners here. And you know what? These women were chosen for a lot of reasons. A couple of them. Now they live in Cedar Rapids, so we didn't have to buy them a plane ticket. They live here, so we didn't have to get a hotel room. That worked for me. But most of all, because they all have their own heart. And what's better in the world than a woman with her own heart? We have a problem here. The competition is so close. It's come down. Come down to a tie. We gotta, we gotta break this tie. God, it is good to be king. So I'm gonna ask the two women who it's come down to one question. The woman with the best answer. Really simple. So as I move my way up and down the line, I'm thinking of a question. would I ask some of the finest looking women in Cedar Rapids that have their own heart? Now, when I ask this question, it's only it's between us. You can't hear, 
you can here. Katz announces that Bischoff will choose the winner. Eric gets on a mic and does his faux sincerity shtick. I love you. Oh, my gosh. I'm so humble. I'm pretending to cry. Mm -hmm. He does that for just ever. He says the women are here because they live in Cedar Rapids, have their own places and their own hogs, and then says that the competition is very close and has come down to a tie and that he will be the one to break the tie. The tiebreaker is a question that he's going to ask two of the women. Uh, he does it where he's like leaning in and telling them a secret with his hand over his mouth right into their ear and then they whisper back to him. Uh, it's The two are like, uh, it's a woman with kind of big, I mean I know this is 97, but she's wearing big 80s glasses. And then the other is the woman with the mullet that Katie mentioned earlier. Uh, the winner is a woman who I believe was named Lori, and she definitely deserves a lot better than this. Uh, Eric makes out with her a little bit. Pyro goes off. Eric says it's good to be the king. And then the married father uh, smooches her some more. <laughs> Katz gives her some flowers, a crown, and a sash. She parades around the ring like getting high fives from people. And I felt like I was watching the prom scene from Carrie, and I was just waiting for the blood to drop. Oh, and <laughs> just um, when she's going around the ring, that's the first time you can see like how the crowd's reacting. And it's like, if they had cell phones at that time, everyone would be on their cell phones right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she walks around the ring, gets some high fives, and then comes and sits down on her throne, which is, and I'm not making this up, a giant toilet. Mm -hmm. They made a giant prop toilet for this woman to sit on it's in like five seconds of the show. I don't even think the announcers mention it. So the gag is like almost lost unless you really pay attention. I, I didn't even notice it. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people would. The moment she was sitting on the giant toilet is exactly when I sent Katie a DM apologizing to her <laughs> for having her watch this pay-per-view. I, th I think I had gotten to about that moment too. <laughs> Eric gets back on commentary and reminds me that I still have to watch a Hogan and Giant match. I was going to say when the when the lady sat down and everything and the other the other women were kind of like giving her hugs and like talking and stuff like that. And I was like, well, at least I know that like it seemed like these women enjoyed hanging out with each other for the day. 
just a little bit of a silver lining that seemed like that these women were kind of enjoying just hanging out with each other and that you could like they're not taking any of this seriously. Yeah, it, it does seem like um, whether it's because they don't hear the commentary and they don't know the level to which they're the butt of the joke. Uh, it does seem like they are having a good time. Yeah, oh, they're having a great time. They're on TV. Right. They're on pay-per-view. Yeah. Out walks the giant and he gets the best reaction of all the music musicless baby faces so far. He is announced as the biggest failure the NWO ever had. Then Hogan appears on the screen. Uh, it's like he said some comments and they just cut him up NWO style. So there's no real substance there. He he basically says hit the lights because it's time for him to come and get the giant. Mm -hmm. Hogan gets an extra flashy entrance as the entire arena goes dark except for the stage and the ring. And they then play some music and thunder effects while Pyro goes off before the NWO music proper plays. Eric lists off some promoters, Jerry Jarrett, Vern Gagne, and Vince McMahon, who owe Hulk a, and I quote, Gret of Daditude. What? It's been a long day. Dad he he tries wow. to say dead of gratitude, but he screws it up and then stops himself because he realizes he's going to screw it up, and then he still screws it yeah. up. <laughs> wow. Hogan comes out with several members of the Dallas Cowboys who are all wearing NWO shirts. Vincent is also with them carrying a chair. Hogan and Giants tear each other down. A few people are already throwing trash yeah. as if they know what's to come. Mm -hmm. I, I don't blame them. Like, they know what's going to happen. Yeah. They know they're <laughs> just going to end up throwing trash at the end anyway. <laughs> Might as well get in so you can get back to your car early. The bell rings and Hogan does punch kick eye gouge stuff while the Giant no-sells it. The Giant lays in some chops and Hogan bails the outside. Giant chases and they re-enter the ring with Hogan cheap-shotting the Giant as he does so. Punch, punch, kick, kick, until a double down from a double clothesline uh, sees both men down until they get back on their feet, where the giant takes over with kicks. He eventually shoves Hogan to the floor, and they wander around a bit until Hogan cheap shots him, and then tries, with Vincent's help, to run the giant's head into the rail, but the giant stops them and hits their heads into the rail instead. Back in the ring, Hogan gets in some more offense, but an inside cradle is stopped by the giant, who slams Hogan to the mat instead. Giant drops an elbow on Hogan, and Brian Nobbs is in the crowd earning his keep by firing up the crowd and cheering on the Giant. <laughs> he is, like, not passively watching this. He is very actively trying to get, like, chants going yeah. and cheering. Hogan throws powder in the Giant's eyes and then chokes him forever on the outside of the <laughs> ring. The camera gets a gross shot of the Giant's open mouth, and Eric says, How would you like to be his dentist and see that once a month? And what the fuck kind of dentist are you seeing once a month, Eric Bischoff? <laughs> that must be nice. <laughs> and I just remember at some point Bischoff in this match says, like, Hogan's just getting started. And I paused the, the recording on the I paused the show on the network and there was eight minutes left in the pay-per-view. <laughs> That's what sticks out to me about Bischoff's commentary. Uh -huh. in this. <laughs> they get back in the ring and the giant hits a backbreaker. The powder that was thrown into his eyes is already forgotten. There was no point to it. It didn't play into the ending. It didn't play into the middle. It was just something they did for 15 seconds. Yeah. The giant goes to the top rope, holy crap, for an elbow drop that Hulkster manages to dodge. Uh, that's, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, that's our first time seeing the giant go to the top rope, is it not? I believe so. I was just more shocked that like Bischoff was completely incapable of even mentioning this. 
He he doesn't say a word about him going to the top. He's just like rambling about some nonsense, and it's just like you can tell Bishop's like I'm really wanting this pay per view to end because he has been talking for three hours straight. Well, yeah, at this point he's he's getting to be a little unbearable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The crowd chants for the giant, and I am impressed that they even retain the will to live at this point. <laughs> when do they start chanting for Sting? Because at some point they just give up and start chanting for Sting. <laughs> that's in that's in the post match. Okay. <laughs> giant no sells a big boot, and Hogan weakly slams him. He barely gets him over for the body slam. He drops the leg, but the giant pops right back to his feet. Hogan walks around, posing to the crowd, oblivious to the seven foot tall man behind him, signaling his intention to do some choke slamming. Nick Patrick could just tell Hogan that this is happening, but he doesn't because reasons. Uh, finally, after like a bunch of Punch and Judy posing, miming, you know, play to the back row shtick, Patrick finally points to Hogan that the giant is behind him, and Hogan turns around into a goozling. Giant chokeslams Hogan, and Patrick counts one, two, and then claims Hogan got his shoulder up of, in spite of the fact that that clearly did not happen. The Giant then presses Hogan's shoulders to the mat, and Patrick counts one, two, and then again claims that he kicked out. This time, Giant hooks the leg, making himself look like a real idiot. Like, he still naively believes that maybe Patrick just needs to see that the pin is a re- right. like. He's like, well, maybe if I pin him again, Patrick will see that it really is three. And Hogan's not even budging. Like, no, Hogan's he's not even cold. budging. He's out for the out for the count. <laughs> Nick Patrick's just like full, like achieved like maximum crookedness at this point. <laughs> this time, Patrick counts a two and then sells that his uh, shoulder hurts. He can't complete <laughs> the count. The giant choke slams Nick Patrick and Eric Bischoff decides he needs to get down there and save Hogan. Buff Bagwell has had a similar revelation. and He sprints to the ring for his effort. He is choke slammed. Eric hands Hogan an NWO guitar. In the ring, the giant chokeslams Vince. He chokeslams Bubba. He is about to chokeslam Six, but Hogan hits him with the guitar, which is for some reason also filled with powder. I think it was supposed to break the first time that it hit Big Show and yeah. didn't because I think the, you were supposed to get the image. I think it was like supposed to be like fake dust, essentially. And when it hit him, it was supposed to explode mm-hmm. and like the dust was supposed to fly everywhere. But instead, that didn't happen. And he just kept hitting him with it over and over while like dust shot out. That's one theory, but hear me out. What if it's where Eric forgot that he hit all the coke? Oh. That could be it, too. <laughs> that, that could explain why Eric Bischoff sounds like so tired now. Yeah, he forgot where he put his stash. Yeah. <laughs> so Hogan hits Giant with the ch- with the guitar, and the Giant, who no-sold falling off of Cobo Hall in Detroit just a year and some change ago, mm. is out cold from a guitar yep. shot. Hogan pulls down the Giants' pants, and the crowd, that's when they start chanting, we want Sting. Yeah, they're done with uh, they're done with butt shots tonight. We already did one earlier in the show. By this point, they were over it. I would suggest that uh, because we had seen two really, really hot weeks of the Giant since after leaving the NWO, the two weeks right after Starcade, where he looked like a killer, the crowd was getting so behind him, he was so cool. Yep. The next two weeks weren't as good, but I think the crowd would still be behind the Giant. He didn't have to win this match, but now he's laying there and they're pulling his pants down and the crowd is like immediately like, we're done with this guy. We want Sting. Yeah. 
I don't think the Giant is ever going to recover as a babyface no. from where he was two weeks ago. The Giant is done. His goose is cooked. Yep. No, I, I 100% agree. They had all the – right after Starcade, a couple weeks after Starcade, they had all the potential to make him like the big – the big face to to fit, go off against NWO, which we've had a couple of episodes where where we talked about how he was the most believable because he was you could believe that he could take them on by himself. Uh, in like direct comparison to like Piper, for example, like no, you can believe mm-hmm. the Giant can do it, but they have just gone out of their way of like with this match and with the uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood match. They've gone all the way to just make him just the most ignorant wrestler possible. That he, for some mm. reason, he thinks that he's gonna get a fair shake at these title matches every single week, and they they yeah. just make him look. They they make him look like a loser, and and fans are they're they're not gonna put up long with a, a guy if he's portrayed as a loser. Yeah, and I mean, there's a reason why shortly after this, you can literally see Paul White just check out. Like, he starts <laughs> yeah. to, he gets in, at this point, he's still in incredible shape and moves mm-hmm. crazy well for a guy that size. Mm-hmm. But, like, shortly after this, you see him start gaining weight. He stops, like, really trying to do all the cool moves he could do for someone that big at this point. Because he just knows. He, he knows they're never actually going to book anyone well that's not for any extended period of time that's not the NWO. Yeah, well, we and we talked about when the Giant was in the NWO and he really wasn't a focus, and there was a lot of episodes where we're like, man, Giant looks like he's been up all night. Like, he, he yes. just looks so ragged and tired. And that, then once we had the focus on him here, he, he he's like, he just he looked refreshed and re-energized and, and ready to be, like, a big deal in WCW, we can kind of see what's going to happen now that he he looks like he di- he does he looks like a loser and he doesn't look like a guy that's going to have a lot of like interest behind him going forward. It's easy to forget because he's so big, but this guy is twenty five years old. Oh, he's so point. young. Yeah. A you know he could have gone he could have been a much bigger star there. He could have everywhere he's gone he's never really been the star that you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, but like, I think it's a combination of just killing him off with stuff like this. I think the hard partying that he was doing, cause he's a 25 year old kid who went from like a charity basketball game to all of a sudden running around with Hulk Hogan and then guys like Nash and Hall show up. Yeah. Like they're going to eat him for lunch. Yes. You know what yep. I mean? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really is an interesting, like Paul White's whole story is an interesting, what could have been, uh, but to finish up the show here. Hogan breaks a wooden chair on the Giant. They spray an NWO for life on his back. The triumphant NWO pose over the Giant's body, and Hogan asks, who's next? The crowd continues to demand Sting. Uh, It eventually dies off, though, and turns to some mild boos as everyone begins to head for the exits. The NWO music plays, and the credits roll, starting and ending with Executive Vice President Eric Bischoff, a.k.a. King. If I had watched this, and if anyone had watched this after paying for it, I don't know why they would ever, ever pay for another WCW pay-per-view. It was really fitting that there was just like, when the show ended, it was like, here's the man to blame for this, Eric Bischoff. (laughs) 
All right. Well, before we talk about what we thought of the show as a whole and summarize our thoughts uh, in case they weren't clear, <laughs> uh, what did you guys think of the main event match? Dave, let's start with you. Well, it made me really forget about the good the goodwill that they got from that ladder match. That's for sure. <laughs> um, we we've seen we've seen these confrontations and half-assed matches between Hogan and the Giant before, so there wasn't anything new here. I mean, it's just unfortunate, and I felt like it was a a big microcosm, like we're talking about, like the missed opportunity with the Giant that the Giant went up to the top to do a flying elbow, mm-hmm. and Eric Bischoff can't even find any reason to comment on him doing that. <laughs> yeah. You know, when when the Giant was kicked out of the NWO after Starcade, uh, we kind of got the impression that that maybe he's just like a filler until the next until the next uh, challenger comes in for Hogan, and it's just really WCW just m- completely missed on on the Giant being a big big star. But yeah, this match is just it's garbage. It's just a garbage match, and it's just and like we're talking about the fans like booing beforehand. We've seen how this plays out with the Hogan title matches. Like the, no yeah. one ever is going to have a, a clear opportunity to beat him cleanly, and until that's shown otherwise, like the fans should not care because they haven't been given any reason to care about someone getting uh, one up on Hogan because it doesn't happen. Katie, how'd you like our main event? I'm not. I'm going to hesitate to call it complete garbage. It's it wasn't good. <laughs> I'm not saying it was good. To me, it was just, this is literally just like a textbook example of WCW main events. It's it's mm-hmm. like, it's completely textbook. The, it, it has an almost non-finish, so to speak. It it uh, There's really n- never any hope that anything is going to happen except just the a tornado of people running in. It's, it's literally, you could just put this in the dictionary of wrestling as WCW main event. There's nothing really spectacularly bad about it, but there's nothing like really good about it either. WCW always had so much trouble with their main events and it's part of why they failed. Mm-hmm. They couldn't book a main event to save their lives a lot of the time, honestly. All right. Well, uh, as for the show overall, it was terrible. I, I really hated it. I truly, when it started, I was like, I was digging the look. And, and you know, I knew enough of the stories out there to know that this is not considered good. Uh, but, like, I did not expect it to be as soul-draining an experience watching it as I as I found right. it. I thought, like, just the fact that you've got, like, guys like, and, and some of these are, I'm not saying that they're bad, but the positions they're at in WCW make it so that, like, why is Hugh Morris on pay-per-view in a nine-minute match? Why is Wall Street on pay-per-view in a nine, ten-minute match? Yeah. That's crazy. I agree with what Katie said uh, earlier about Ray Trailer being great, but where Bubba is at this point in WCW, he should not be on pay-per-view right. in a ten-minute yep. match. It's crazy the matches that were on this show. If you look at it, you, you could just look at it on paper and know that this wasn't going to be a good show. And then in execution, it was even worse than it would be on paper. Mm. Uh, and then the last 35 minutes, everything after the ladder match, the Miss NWO stuff and the main event and the finish, it was some of the worst I've ever seen on a major company pay-per-view show. The only things I can think of that come close are Michael Cole versus Jerry Lawler and John Cena versus John Laurinaitis. Those are two other 
stretches that were like a half hour in length where I remember just wanting to die <laughs> watching them. Tim, you have a long, long road ahead of you if this is what destroyed you. Yeah. Because, I mean, this isn't good, but in the scope of WCW, it gets so much worse. It gets it gets so much more soul-draining as time goes on. And see, I, I know that by reputation, but I think what's different is at least on a bad Nitro there's bad promos and there's bad angles when it's just distilled down to bad wrestling with a few paper, you know, like a pay-per-view that's bad is so much worse to watch than a TV show that's bad, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, because you're paying so much for it. Are you even if you're not paying, you're watching it retroactively. You're sitting there like people paid for this. Yeah. Yeah. So when we get into when we get into 99, I just we'll talk about the pay-per-views. I don't know that we're going to have a lot of episodes where we sit there and go through them like this because I will just I I can't. I won't. I refuse to do it. Dave. (laughs) You can't make me. No, no. I I've always been a proponent of just like, hey, let's just sum up the matches and be like, oh, these are good. These were not good. I'm fine. I'm yeah. If you're saying, hey, Dave, <laughs> you want to do less play by play for these pay-per-view matches? I'd be like, where the fuck do I sign up for that? You know, I know. <laughs> and that is our that's always my intention. I always say we're not going to do the pay-per-views. We're just going to do Nitro. But then these pay-per-views end up being for better or for worse. Uh, they, you know, so memorable and they deserve like this pay-per-view deserves being talked yeah. about. Uh you know, for this, maybe not for this long, sure. <laughs> but it deserves being talked about. Uh, but Dave, what did you think overall of NWO sold out 97? Well, I thought it was garbage. Uh, I thought from the beginning, <laughs> I, I had a, it's like, I have a bad feeling about this when they came with the, the garbage trucks and just, you know, there, there, and there's just elements of it where you're just like, there was just a lot of times where I was thinking like, what were they hoping to accomplish here? Um, especially I, I don't think like the, the ridicule parody Miss NWO thing is a good idea whatsoever. I think it's terrible. I think someone should have told them like, you're going to look like an awful person and not just like as a heel, mm-hmm. but just as a person, you're going to look awful doing this. Yes. But I mean, with that being like, just saying for the sake of, of, of discussion that you have to put on this fake NWO, Miss NWO thing. Why was it not just one segment? Oh, God. Yeah, right. Why did they not just like just be like, here are the women, we're going to ask some questions, and then we're going to announce the winner. Why was it mm-hmm. always the filler for every uh, single thing? It's just, yeah. there was a lot of just mind-boggling like decisions that were made on the show uh, where like you're talking about with, um, with interviewing with uh, Bischoff, that he just didn't realize were bad ideas. And if that's the case, then it's like, we, we need someone to reel in Eric Bischoff then, because that there's a lot of bad ideas run amok on this pay-per-view. Yeah. I want to follow up on that because, you know, I listened to Neil Pruitt, producer WCW talk about this whole show. I listened to Tony Schiavone talk about it. I listened to Eric Bischoff talk about it. Uh, And it's clear, very, very clear that this entire show, this is Eric Bischoff's baby. This is not like a bunch of people had bad ideas and it didn't work. Eric Bischoff had a bunch of bad ideas <laughs> and they didn't work. Uh, and, and like he, this truly is his creative energy at, at max volume. Yeah. And it really teaches you, uh, like a lot of people say with Vince Russo, right? That he threw out ideas and McMahon 
was like the person through the filter through which some of those ideas mm-hmm. that were really crappy got cut and others that were successful made it through. Like Eric Bischoff right now, I think because the NWO, like he already is the boss, yeah. but because the NWO is so successful, I think he's starting to feel like I did this. I'm calling all the shots. Like I have the golden touch and everything I touch, you know, everything I do is great. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the apex of that line of thought and finally seeing it come crashing back to earth like no dude yeah (laughs) you need to run some of your ideas by other people a because they can tell you what's a good idea and a bad idea and b because like if you the little things like i want to have a miss nwo contest where we have like re quote unquote real women out there and it's going to be kind of a funny thing if nothing else even if someone didn't say eric we're going to look like jerks you're going to look like a jerk even if that person would have said well, let's at least write funny answers that those women can give because it'll be more entertaining. Yeah. Like, even that would have helped a little right. bit. Uh, but no one did. Uh, oh, I, It's so frustrating. Katie, <laughs> what did you think of the show? I don't have the same level of, like, vitriol for it that you two do. <laughs> Part of it's because I know how much worse it gets, I think. Yeah, sure. I, I just It's freshly in my mind just how much worse it gets. By no means am I saying it's a good pay-per-view. That's not what I'm saying. But, like, I was at least able to find certain parts of it, like, bad entertaining, you know? Mm-hmm. Like... I'm like a train wreck, but it mm-hmm. definitely wasn't good. And the main event definitely sucked. And Hugh Morris versus Ray Trailer sucked and made me feel so bad for Ray Trailer. And <laughs> like the only match I can actually say was really good was the ladder match. Like that's the only one where I ever watched it and thought like, okay, this is a really good match. Mm-hmm. Like it's a shame it's on this pay-per-view. I agree. Like they, they really should have cut down the... Miss uh, NWO tournament, whatever that was. What I don't like, whatever abstract concept they were going for with that contest or whatever they want to co- call it, they could have definitely made it several segments shorter and actually maybe given some time to some wrestlers who didn't get on the show, something mm-hmm. like that. It 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 was not good. It 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 had so much potential to be better. Yeah. is what's frustrating. The most frustrating, I think. Like it was like a good concept having the big like evil faction run their own pay per view, mm. but it just wasn't executed well at all. Let's get a little reaction from the critics of the time. Uh, I have the following quote from Dave Meltzer. This was in the Wrestling Observer following the show. Quote, NWO sold out what came off to outsiders as the brainchild of someone intoxicated by his own success to the point of all perspective being lost was the single worst pay-per-view show in the history of pro wrestling. There have been shows where the quality of the matches were worse, although this would be a bad show by that criterion. There have been shows with less heat and worse atmosphere, although this would be a bad show by that criteria as well. But there has never been a show with such poor announcing and outside wrestling skits, and combined with the bad wrestling, the lack of heat, and the bad atmosphere, it made the Baltimore Bash and the Philadelphia Halloween Havoc uh, no longer the bottom two of the pay-per-view barrel. Those are infamously bad WCW pay-per-views from the early 90s. Mm -hmm. It was like WCW copied the worst aspects of the first two weeks of Shotgun Saturday Night and then tried to go even further to the point that it looked like a bar show put on by a person whose brain was so fried by acid that only (laughs) they knew where in the world they were and what they were trying to do. It only had a semblance 
of the pro wrestling show that they were attempting to put together. It was even more amazing coming from a company that was on its biggest role in history and is loaded when it comes to talent depth, neither of which were apparent. Uh, and then from the PW, this is Wade Keller writing in the PW uh, Pro Wrestling Torch. The first NWO pay-per-view will be remembered, or perhaps more aptly put, vilified for years to come as one of the biggest aesthetic flops of a big event ever. Almost nothing seemed to go right, but what makes it more disturbing is that everything seemed to go as planned. <laughs> the matches, with one exception, were all below average, some well below average. The fans weren't pro-NWO or pro-WCW as much as they were bored or turned off. The skits went nowhere. The finish was anticlimactic. <laughs> the live rock band, members of the band Jackal, seemed to be embarrassed uh, by their bands of... Uh, halfway through their really long song. Also, oh, he mentions the live audio. I wonder if the WWE Network puts fake music over their actual playing. It is that entirely w- possible. That would have yeah. to be licensed music. I was thinking about that too earlier, and I forgot to bring it up. There's an in- there's an entirely possible chance that WWE Network just took took all the live productions out. Like when you get to what they do that a lot with WCW, mm-hmm. and it ruins a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. The event. This is Wade Keller continuing. Uh, Nothing unexpected happened. In other words, the ideas were ill-conceived or poorly planned from the start. Uh, He goes on. uh, The the, the only other really good line about it is somewhere uh, Dave says it feels like he just spent three hours watching someone masturbating and says that he's not sure that that's not exactly what it was. And that feels so true. This this essentially was three hours of Eric Bischoff masturbating. The show drew a 0.47 buy rate. Ouch. Uh, to give you some idea, that is uh, the month before Starcade was a 0.95. So Starcade got 345,000 buys. This show got 170,000 buys. Wow. That's a steep drop. And I mean, in defense, Starcade's their big show, but it's mm-hmm. still a pretty heavy drop. It's huge. Uh, I know that it's on Saturday, but I just. I think people have got onto the idea that if the NWO are heavily involved, we're not going to get finishes. We're going to get a bunch of BS. And so if it's an all NWO show, I'm going to get a bunch of BS finishes. And so I think they just, you know, they didn't call their cable company. They didn't order. I don't blame them. And they kept calling WCW and they couldn't find out enough information about six and the ladder match. (laughs) So they didn't bother. That was the breaking point. (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like that's pretty good exhaustive <laughs> coverage of Sold Out 1997. Before we go on and name our match of the night and our MVP, Katie, you you did by far the most professional job I've seen of any guest on the show of pl- getting your plugs in. You had the Twitch stream, everything. But here at the end of the show, why don't you get them out there again, where you are in social media, Twitch, all that good stuff. Uh, the main place you can follow me at is on my Twitter. It's at RefKatie, and it's K-A-T-Y. It's Katie with a Y. I, I have to insist that over and over because no one ever remembers <laughs> it. Uh, Twitch, I am at over here counting on Twitch. I stream Pokemon pretty much every day. If you're into that, you can follow me there. It would really help because I'm trying to get to affiliate right now. Uh, I am on the podcast contesting wrestling most episodes i do take some off uh essentially what we do is we make our friend evan who doesn't actually like wrestling watch wrestling just to get reactions out of him and we're basically running him through basically 
a lot of historical stuff showing him big moments, big wrestlers, doing themed episodes. Uh, we are on Twitter as well, so you can follow us there. You just have to look up Contesting Wrestling on Twitter and it'll come up. And we have a bunch of episodes out already. Yeah, and if you're listening to this, you presumably like wrestling podcasts. And I can say, just to get an idea, almost because I was like, I just wonder, uh, you mentioned you had a podcast, and I was like, ooh, I wonder what her audio quality will be like when she sends me her, her side of the recording. So I went and I listened. Uh, the first one I put on, you were not on. So I listened for a while just to get an idea of it. But then I listened to, uh, it was an episode on squash matches. Okay. And it was a lot of fun. I really liked it. So for people who are listening who are into wrestling podcasts, uh, Contesting Wrestling, that's got the Tim Rutt seal of approval. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was definitely before we've been recording remotely. Back The squash matches were right before uh, everything kind of shut down. Oh, sure. Yeah. But thank you. That's all I have for my plugs. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And there's only one thing we're going to ask of you more. We're going to name our match of the night and our MVP. We're going to start, let's say, with match of the night this time. Uh, and I'll go first. For me, the match of the night, I'm going to have to say the ladder match. Uh, it was, you know, it was the easily the best match. It was two guys who were, you know, putting their bodies on the line like you are in any ladder match. Uh, and I thought it was it was a just a good, solid match. It was... I really like watching early ladder matches and seeing, you know, they're trying what works, what doesn't, what am I willing to do, what's too dangerous, and the slow escalation of, of stuntery that you kind of get with them. Uh, but I thought this one was good. I enjoyed watching it, especially compared to what else was on the show. Uh, Katie, we'll go to you next. What was your match or segment of the night? It's not even hard, the ladder match. It was so much better than everything else on the show. Like, I, I, I didn't even, I had to think about it for a minute, but I'm like, no, you can't even. It's the only match that didn't really suffer from the fact that it was such a heel-dominated show. Like, the finish didn't suffer, the match quality didn't suffer. This is Eddie Guerrero, at like, probably at his peak physically, you know? Mm-hmm. Dave, what was your segment match the night? Whatever you like. Uh, yeah, yeah, ladder match. Um, I don't. There's no. There's no funnier, clever way to say something else besides a ladder match. <laughs> um, I. I just want to. I want to make a an honorable mention or note to Diamond Dallas Page versus Scott Norm because, like I said when we were doing the review of it, that was like the first match that really genuinely felt like a, a legitimate match instead of uh, some sort of weird NWO segment. Um, and I thought both those guys were kind of doing their job very well up until uh, the the pretty dumbass finish that they had for that. Um, but yeah, obviously the ladder match it's it is uh it, it's a, it's a, I feel like it's a really good ladder match that um, deserves better than to be kind of like in this purgatory of a pay per view that no one else will ever go and visit again. Because I'm not going to suggest that anyone should turn on sold out just to watch that ladder match. Friends, it's not <laughs> worth it. It's not worth doing. No. All right, and that just leaves our MVP. We'll snake back by starting with you. Dave, who is your MVP of the show? I would say it's six in particular. Like I was mentioning in the match, it really felt like that he was putting an all-out effort to try to make it as, as great of a ladder match as possible. I'm sure being friends with Shawn Michaels and Scott Hall probably put a extra pressure on himself to put on put on an exceptional ladder match um mm -hmm. and also just 
that drop kick off the top of the ladder was something where I was like, wait, what did he just do? Because that seemed crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, like honorable mention to Eddie Guerrero because you can't do you can't have a ladder match by yourself. So, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I would say six really impressed me with his uh, uh, his desire to go in above and beyond, especially for a show that was awful up until that point. Like he probably he had to know that this was a stinker of a pay per view. And still went out mm-hmm. there and gave his best effort. So my MVP is six. Katie, who was your MVP of the show? Uh, uh, Dave might give me a little slack for this, but I have to actually go with Patrick because he <laughs> refs uh, as someone who's a ref that eat like you don't even understand how. Well, may, maybe you do. I don't know. It's hard to even grasp how hard it is to even ref just two or three matches in a row sure like to ref a three hour paper pay-per-view by yourself and barely even have moments where you even look tired and still remember everything that's supposed to happen barely botch any calls at all and still remember everywhere you're supposed to be and like you guys were pointing out how with it he was in the ladder match still and how how good of a job he was doing in the ladder match like helping six out making sure the ladder was where it was supposed to be keep in mind at this point he'd been refing two and a half hours he had been in the ring for two and a half hours just imagine how tired you you'd be after that after being active being under those lights for all that time just from a professionalism level Nobody mm-hmm. actually worked harder on that show than Nick Patrick because he was out there the whole time. Those are really good points. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna get mad for a professional referee selecting a referee for MVP. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, my MVP. I'm gonna give a, a special honorable mention because I think the women of the Miss NWO contest really deserve. Like I said, they were the heroes of the show. Uh, Bless each and every one of them for having a good time and enjoying themselves during what what was just a crappy thing that should not have been put upon them. I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the only redeeming quality was that the whole time I could say, well, at least it looks like they're having fun. So kudos to them. Uh, but my, my MVP is going to be Buff Bagwell uh, for the fact that he just really stepped out. This is like, we just saw him unfold tonight we just this character i know he turned heel a while ago but we really have not seen him in a prominent position he certainly hasn't cut a promo or anything like that and all of a sudden he's got this gear and he's got like funny bits built around it he's got uh he's got good promos he's got funny posing he's he's got a new finisher that he didn't quite execute properly but just uh, overall, I, I really was amazed at the way he quickly put together an all-new persona, and it made a guy who was just, like, a handsome guy in a tag team that was known for just being two handsome guys yeah. into an interesting character that I'm looking forward to seeing on future episodes of Monday Nitro. All right, well, that is everything, so... Are you sure? Is there nothing else to be talked about yet? <laughs> I hope... I, I really, like, I stressed about this actively. I kept thinking, when I told Katie that we could go long, I wonder how long she thinks long is. This is about what I expected. Okay. Well, I really do appreciate you spending uh, so much time watching the show and then coming on here to discuss us. It was a lot of fun, and we appreciate your insights. And I appreciate you guys for having me on. This was a lot of fun to record. It was a lot of fun to hear just everyone's perspective on it. And I think it's I think it's great that we all kind of unanimously agreed that the, the only match that was really worth it <laughs> from a technical <laughs> standpoint was 
Eddie versus Six. Well, the next thing to do is see how it follows up on the Monday Nitro that was January 27th, 1997. And we will come to you with that episode of our coverage right here where the big boys play. 20 years of Nitro. What what went wrong here? Let's recap. Well, let's let's, let, let's just make it a like make it a shorter question. What went right? Okay, okay. you've got, got equate the NWO is the James Bond of fucking wrestling identities. So of course, if all, most of the James Bond movies I have watched, they don't start in Hong Kong or. Berlin, they usually start someplace like old fucking Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids. <laughs> just, just, just a place where you say to yourself, you know what, honey, I want a good fucking steak, a good bottle of wine, and a nice cigar. Let's take the private plane to Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids. So uh, then you take that and you fly us in the night before and have us drive the streets in fucking garbage trucks at about minus 20. Then you have a Miss NWO contest that is, you should have went out and got, it should have been the maximum top 25 girls. I was and it should have been, it. It, it should have been three or four, like, it should have been like the Mr. Olympia, prejudging from the 25 to 12 to 6 to 3. I mean, they could, that should have been the ongoing, and then had back, Ground stories where the if guys were going to do jobs, it was because they were coming out of the out of the back locker rooms with their hairs messed up because they were ho hooking yeah, up. That's yeah. great. That's a good. Yeah, you know I mean, I but mean, why? It was, it's it's such an obvious thing to go against the the identity and the brand, like you said before, that NW had built. Why did it happen? Because Eric Bischoff likes motorcycles. That's his vision. But he, he was kind of the engineer, too, of the NWO's identity, right? Until until two guys walked out there with swagger. I mean, we we he had the concept. We created the image. We were the two guys that that the people were like that. We were cool. Did you say this is a mistake, Eric? This is not what. The NWO would do. We would have no, because the, you can't, all you, the strip clubs emptied out in Cedar Rapids by the end of the night. No, number one though, you would. It's like you, you would. Why would that not be in Vegas? So, are you aware when this is happening that it's off? That we're off. Well, base? the fact that we lost every match. On top of that, you know, it just. It was just you couldn't have booked done. It, but at the same time. I'm sure, and I don't remember what our thought patterns were, but I'm sure Scott and I said, let's just shut up. We'll use this against them later. Like, this is what your guys' vision was. Will, you know, this is, this is when you guys were in charge. This is what you, like, I guess you guys don't remember when fucking King Curtis fucking right before we came was saying, Sullivan, my son, my son, my son, and the giant fell off the top of Cobo Hall. I guess we've all had amnesia after the 60, the 60 fucking week run we've had here.